When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And this week we are covering Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, two amazing little books of Scripture that never seem to get the attention they deserve. Well, today we're going to give them that attention. And I hope that it will help you see yourself in the story because these books are incredibly applicable, believe it or not. Now, to get into that history, though, let me tell you some personal history to help set the stage. And this story comes from my years as a young father. My children were small and often they'd ask me, Daddy, what do you do at work anyway? Uh, I mean, they knew what mommy did at work because she worked, worked, worked for them all day at, at home. But me, I disappeared in the morning and reappeared in the evening and they were kind of wondering what I'd been up to in between. Well, I could have just told them that daddy's a teacher. So I go to a school kind of place and I teach. But when you're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that explanation just doesn't quite do it justice. So instead, I would straight-faced and somber say to them, oh, what does daddy do at work? He builds the kingdom. And I doubt they had any idea what that meant, but it sure stirred their imaginations. I mean, when you're raised on Disney princess movies, then the thought of daddy building kingdoms at work well, sounds pretty epic. And if nothing else, it gave them a talking point on the playground if their friends ever asked, oh, our daddy builds the kingdom, whatever that means. Well, one year, I was on a, a one-year rotation teaching at BYU before the church shipped us off to Tennessee. And I remember my wife would bring the kids up and we'd do things on campus. We loved it. The kids were small. Oldest was four, second was three, third was one, child four and five were off on the horizon somewhere. And my wife would bring them up and we'd all oh, have lunch at the Cougar Eat or we'd feed the ducks at the Botany Pond, which I think is no longer allowed. Or we'd set up a little family picnic on a lawn somewhere on campus as BYU students walked by ooing and aahing over the presence of little children. They probably missed brothers and sisters back home. Well, it was one of those kinds of days and we were wrapping up our family picnic because I had to go teach a class. And so my wife was getting the kids in the car and my sweet little three-year-old son didn't want to go. And he was just crying out to me through his blonde bowl cut, uh, Daddy, I want to stay with you. I want to stay with you. And I'd say, son, I want to stay with you too. We'll play when I get home. But right now, Daddy, Daddy has to go to work. Well, that clicked in that little three-year-old mind thinking, Daddy works? I know what Daddy does at work. I want to do that too. And so he yelled out for all to hear, I want to stay with you, Daddy. I want to build the kingdom. And I died laughing as the BYU students probably thought, that is one impressive kid. Uh, three years old and he wants to build the kingdom already. Well, he was an impressive kid and he's even more impressive now as a, as a missionary, uh, building the kingdom in ways that I'm sure he didn't imagine way back then. Well, it's that, it's that story that I hope will set the stage for Ezra and Nehemiah. I hope that we will channel our inner three-year-old and cry up to our Father, capital F in this case, that we want to stay with Him, that we want to, to be part of His work and glory, that we just want to build the kingdom, because these two books of Scripture are all about building. More accurately, they're all about rebuilding. Specifically, in Ezra, rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem. 
and in Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Because if you remember last week, our, our history lesson, as we went through the Assyrian Empire scattering the northern kingdoms, the lost tribes, and then, the, and then Babylon replacing them and destroying the southern kingdom and dragging the Jews back to Babylon. Well, we're now on to civilization number three this week in Persia. And Persia displaces the Babylonians and they have a different game plan. Right? Remember, remember this last week, I, I mentioned if you're going to conquer the world, you better have a game plan on how to rule it. And the Assyrian plan was to shuffle the deck. The Babylonian game plan was to Babylonify the people that you've conquered. The Persian game plan was, let's play nice. Let's live and let live. And as long as you're loyal citizens, go back home and live your life. And that was the plan of the Persians toward the Jews. Go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple, Ezra, and rebuild your walls, Nehemiah. Now, that's just the history, though. Personal application. Have you ever had to rebuild anything? And the more personal, the, the, the better, as far as our understanding today. Has it been your faith? Did it, has your faith taken a hit and come down crumbling? Has it been shaken to the point of needing to be rebuilt? How about your testimony? Are there cracks in its foundation to the point that you're scared to even look and see how deep they go? Is it your personal relationships that have been frayed? And are you worried that they might never be able to be rebuilt the way you want them to? Or is it your own sense of self that can be fragile at times? And if you are the one who feels broken, then how can you ever rebuild yourself into something stronger? These are the questions we need to be asking as we study Ezra and Nehemiah, because the principles they teach about reconstruction, I'll put it this way, Christ is the mender of broken things. He takes our ashes and turns it into beauty. He re refashions our, our shattered clay. He breathes life into dead places. He rebuilds with himself as chief cornerstone. Far stronger foundation than anything we had before. And I pray that through the Spirit we can see him at work on us in the principles that we study today. Now in some ways this goes far beyond just, oh, just Ezra and Nehemiah. The whole history of Israel has been a process of deconstruction and reconstruction. If you think about, well, let me put it this way. Take those two elements, temple and wall, as metaphors. Because the temple was the core of Israelite life, of Israelite identity. That was their, their purpose. And life literally revolved around the temple. Daily sacrifices and, and yearly pilgrimage feasts and so on. And, and that, was, that was what it was all about for them. Their central organizing purpose. And think about that for you. What is that? What is that in your case? What's your, the purpose in life? And if your temple gets destroyed, you wonder, what am I here for? Talk about midlife crisis, right? What am I supposed to be doing with my life now that the temple is no longer here? And then the walls, those are our boundaries. It's what keeps certain things out and allows other things to stay in and be protected. But it's also the limits of of who we are. In some ways, our walls represent our personal identity because those walls define the, the limits of who we are. Uh, if you think about even the word define or definition, the F-I-N there means fiend, end. 
That's the edge of me. Those are my limits. That's what defines me. If you looked at outlines of states or of countries, it's that border, it's that wall that, that helps us identify what it is that's inside it. Even televisions that are high def, high definition, it's the lines that are crisp and clear. No blurred boundaries. And so if we think about what life would be like with the loss of a temple and the loss of a wall, I have no purpose and I have no sense of identity. I don't know who I am anymore, and I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And how do I rebuild there? I've said this before, I work with a lot of people that are in the middle of faith crisis. And often for them, it's a sense of broken walls and broken temples. And what do I do? I talk to them often about stages of faith, which I simplify as creation, fall, atonement. And in construction terms, creation is, is building. And fall is, is being destroyed, being broken. And atonement is being rebuilt. Construction, deconstruction, reconstruction with a far firmer foundation. And in some ways that describes the history of Israel for a long, long time. They were created back in Genesis. What's our identity? What are our walls? How do we define ourselves? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're the seed of Abraham. We're the house of Israel. And what is our core? What is our temple? For them, it was the Abrahamic covenant that we are God's people and we have a purpose in life, which is to, to bless all the kindreds of the earth with the blessings that God has given us. Well, there's a temple and there's a wall, but it was destroyed when they were carried off, well, or when they were in bondage in Egypt. Talk about a loss of temple and of walls. Talk about a loss of identity and purpose. Identity? We've been dehumanized. We're slaves here. And purpose? Survive? Work for Pharaoh? Until God sent a deliverer who provided them temple and walls again. In his case, temple was tabernacle, but a central organizing purpose. Uh, their life revolved around the law and the commandments God had given. And as far as defining themselves, what are our walls? Well, we are God's peculiar people. Uh, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We have our identity and purpose again. And they come into their promised land only centuries later to be destroyed all over again, deconstructed. Like we saw last week, northern kingdoms scattered to the wind by the Assyrians. You want to talk about a loss of walls? A loss of personal identity. I don't even know who I am anymore, Samaritans. I've been mixed and mingled and intermarried and, and I've lost a sense of self. And then with the destruction of the temple in Judah, in Jerusalem by the Babylonians, what's my purpose now? What's my central organizing priority in life? Because that's been demolished. And where do I go from here? Well, we go to Ezra and Nehemiah as we see that, that identity and purpose rebuilt, reformed. And I pray that you will see in the stories that we'll study today, hope for yourself or for those that you love most, if any of them are in need of reconstruction as well. Now to get into Ezra and Nehemiah, we have to finish Second Chronicles 
because in many ways, Second Chronicles flows exactly into Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the end of our, of our history, by the way. Next week we'll have Esther, but her story fits into the chronology we'll cover today. And then the history's done, and we hit the intertestamental period where no prophets are writing scripture, and then we have to wait for the New Testament to begin a few hundred years later. Uh, this is the end of our section on history, and next week, or two weeks, we'll get into the wisdom literature and then on into the prophetic books that will carry us through the rest of our Old Testament study. But the way 2 Chronicles ends is literally the way Ezra begins. The last three verses of 2 Chronicles and the first three verses of Ezra are almost identical. They, you can't make it more obvious that we are in the passing zone of a relay. And Chronicles is passing the baton to Ezra and it's, he's supposed to pick up and run from exactly where it leaves off. So let's go back and, and finish 2 Chronicles 36. We ended there last week with that sad verse about there being no remedy because the people had rejected their prophets. Let's pick up there. This is 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15 and 16. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Did you catch that? On his people, those boundaries, those walls, that sense of identity, and on his dwelling place, the temple, the core, the core purpose of their lives. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Now the remedy we're going to see today, and it's the rebuilding, the reconstruction of temple and of walls. But keep going in 2 Chronicles. Verse 17, Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, there's King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion upon young men or maiden, old man, or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. Compare the Lord's compassion in verse 15 to Nebuchadnezzar's lack of compassion in 17. And whose side do you want to be on? The Lord's or the wicked world's? Well, verse 18, all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, there goes the temple, and break down the wall of Jerusalem, the two halves of this hole that we'll be talking about today. He burnt the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. So that's where we were left last week. Uh, no identity and no purpose, no walls, no temple. But notice what happens next in verse 20. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon. That's going to be Ezekiel. That's going to be Daniel. Where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. Now, what the chronicler is getting at there is Jeremiah's prophecy that you'll only be in captivity for 70 years and then you'll return. You can couple that with Isaiah's prophecy that there would come a king named Cyrus who would be a blessing to the house of Israel, despite his outsider status. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. Assyria was displaced by Babylon, Babylon now displaced by Persia, and under the Persian reign, go home and begin to rebuild. One thing, thing that he added, though, is that until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, what's that all about? 
Well, you probably don't remember because it's been so long, but back in Leviticus, there was a whole chapter about blessings and curses if you're obedient or disobedient, and a lot of it revolved around the Sabbath. And one of the things it said was, if you don't keep the Sabbath on the land, then you'll get driven out of the land so the land can keep the Sabbath without you. That's how serious God is about the, the Sabbath day. Uh, you won't rest on the, on the day, then I'll, I'll boot you out so at least the land can rest. In fact, the land can rest for every day. And that's exactly what happened during the Babylonian captivity. It was 70 years worth of, worths of Sabbaths for the land of promise, devoid of people that hadn't been keeping their promises. Now to see that, go back to Le Leviticus 26. I promise there's, there's a reason for this field trip. In, but in chapter 26 of Levit Leviticus, verses 31 to 33, I don't think there's a better checklist in Scripture as far as fulfilled prophecy at the end of, of Jewish history that we've been studying. I'll, I'll, let's read it and I'll, you'll see what I mean. This is a warning to those who break their covenants. And it's, like I said, picture it as a checklist of prophecies yet to be fulfilled. I will make your cities waste. Well, check that box. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. And I will bring your sanctuaries into desolation. Check that box too, since the temple has now been destroyed. I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. Check that box. There's the cessation of ritual sacrifice. Uh, there's no altar at the temple to offer them on anymore. And I will bring the land into desolation. Check again. The devastation of Israel by the Assyrians, of Judah by the Babylonians. Your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And check that box as Assyria's other conquered peoples come in and wonder about the manner of the God of the land. As people come in and see the devastation of what was once one of the glories of the ancient world, the Temple of Solomon. Keep going. I will scatter you among the heathen. Check that box, thanks to the Assyrians. And will draw out a sword after you. Check that box, thanks to the Babylonians. And your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Check and check. Once again, everything that, was, that they were warned about has happened. And then notice what Leviticus says next. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate and ye be in your enemy's land, even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. Oh, it's amazing how that passage in Leviticus ties in so perfectly to the passage in 2 Chronicles. Because it's happening. And during that, those years of the land lying fallow, it's because the people were lying in bondage in, in Babylon. But that time has come to its end. And Cyrus, as prophesied, has come to the throne, and he's sending them home after 70 years, as prophesied as well. In verse 22 and 23 of 2 Chronicles 36, notice how the story ends, or at least how the Chronicles ends and how Ezra begins. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing. And this is what it said. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him, 
and let him go up. Notice the direction there, go up. Climb to a higher level of living. Seek higher ground, spiritually speaking. And that's what he was looking for. Who is able and willing to do this? Because your God somehow was aware of me. Yes, I have my Persian pantheon, but, but the God of Israel has commanded through his prophets, even before I was born, that, that I was supposed to honor him and support his people in rebuilding their temple. Now, if you wanted to do this in Dolby surround sound, you should have one person read the final three verses of 2 Chronicles, and then another person read the first three verses of Ezra. Because as I mentioned, they are almost identical. And so the baton is being passed, and now we're into this next stage of Israelite history. But the Ezra version is a little more full at the very end. So go with me to Ezra chapter 1, verse 3, and we'll pick up where Cyrus left off. Who is there among you of all his people? We saw that same question. His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem. That's where Chronicles ends. But the book of Ezra adds this. So let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God. So go build his house, which is in Jerusalem. Amazing that an outsider would recognize this. Again, with the help of, of prophetic prophecy. But he is the God. There's something about the God of Israel that outranks the, the gods of Persia. And so I want to honor him. But that's my question. Who else does? And who's going to go up and go back and rebuild? The answer starts in verse 5. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. Now, that's so far, it sounds like the people that ought to be doing this. You're in charge for crying out loud, or you're, you're the priesthood bearers, so of course you should go. But notice the next phrase. With all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. God was raising people's spirits, lifting their sights, pointing them homeward. And not just chiefs and fathers and priests and Levites. No, all of them. If the Spirit has touched you, don't wait for a formal calling to go build the kingdom. Build it right now. You don't have to be a person of great name or great renown. We'll see that in chapter 2. We can simply heed the Spirit's promptings to go make a difference. And that's what these people are doing. Now, there's another group that seems to stand alongside them in verse 6. All they that were about them. So it seems, in my mind at least, to suggest that some people that are there intermingled with those that are deciding. They've been raised by this spirit to go home. But this other group that's with them, notice what they do in verse 6. They strengthen their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. Now, I don't know what was keeping this group from joining the others and actually heading back to Jerusalem themselves. I, I won't judge them since I don't know the information there. But the fact they were willing to strengthen the hands of those that were going, in my mind, speaks highly of this group. If you can't serve a mission, for example, because of health concerns, can you strengthen those that are out serving? If you're a senior couple and you don't have the, the physical health to be able to go serve, but you do have the financial resources, then help someone else that's in the opposite circumstance, that has the health and the desire, but not the, the financial ability to do so. If there's so much we can do to either go ourselves or to strengthen those around us who are going. 
And speaking of those who are strengthening, look at verse 7. Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Again, this non-member, an instrument in the hands of God to help the house of Israel rebuild their temple. God definitely uses more than just us. And I'm grateful for that. There's too much work to do for just the Latter-day Saints to do it. Elder Orson F. Whitney taught that plainly. Well, Cyrus is going to take these vessels. This is where Isaiah's phrase, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Take them back uh, and, and rebuild your temple to give these, place, these vessels a place to be. Table of showbread, candlestick, uh, altar of incense, Ark of the Covenant, you name it, it needs to go back home. So Cyrus gives all these vessels to a man named Sheshbazar, who is a prince of Judah, and he takes them back to Jerusalem along with his group of returning Jews. Which then leads to chapter 2, which is uh, more of a, a genealogical list. It's a list of the people, of the, the heads of the families that are heading back to Jerusalem to help rebuild. They're going with um, another man named Zerubbabel, and his name will become synonymous with the temple. We have the Temple of Solomon, and after it's destroyed and then now rebuilt, it's going to be called the Temple of Zerubbabel. Uh, and so he's an important one to meet. The challenge is, the first, oh, like 60 verses, though, are all kinds of other people we need to meet, too, and we don't know anything about their stories. Like I said earlier about those that the Spirit has raised, but we don't know their names. Well, here we know their names, but that doesn't help us at all. Uh, I mean, I dare you to read the first 60 verses or so and see if you recognize anybody. You'll probably recognize a few place names, but not personal names, because we don't know anything about them. That should actually tell us something beautiful. Then when it comes to building the kingdom, most of the heavy lifting will be done by, oh, the common, ordinary, everyday disciple of Christ. The unknown or unnamed saints that are just lifting where they stand and trying to make a difference. That's the sense I get as I read over name after name after name of people I've never heard of. I'm sure the same would be true of most of the work done in church history. Well, that changes somewhat when you get near the end and there's a couple of verses that teach us something about identity and about purpose. There's walls and temple all over again, as far as our family history is concerned. So look at verse 59, and then again at 61 and 62, and think about the importance of knowing who you are based on the family tree that you've been growing on. Verse 59, And these were they which went up from Telmelah and Telharsa and Cherub and Adon and Immer, but they could not show their father's house and their seed, whether they were of Israel. Now, this is going to be a problem when so much of who you are is defined by the tribe that you're a part of or the nation that you are a part of. We have Ammonites and, and Gileadites and Edomites and Moabites and Syrians and Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians. Well, we have Israelites, but this poor family, these individuals cannot show their father's house. They don't know their family tree, so they don't know if they're really a part of it or not. Whether they were of Israel, do we know that we are? If we were to look around us at the family we are growing up in or the family we're trying to raise ourselves, do, do we know that we are of Israel? Have we made that clear or have our ancestors? I'm so grateful to be able to look back at my family history and see evidence of people building the kingdom 
and seeking truth even before the restoration, just living according to whatever light they had. I'm grateful for my wife's ancestry that now has my children related to people that I'm jealous that I'm not related to directly myself. There's, there's power there, but these poor people couldn't, couldn't make those connections. They didn't know who they were. You see a similar problem in verse 61 and 62. It mentions the children of the priests and lists a certain family among them and then says this in 62. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy. They're trying to figure out who they are and who they belong to also. But they were not found. They, they couldn't make the links across the family generations. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. Now, as polluted, they hadn't done anything wrong. Well, you're right. But for that period, priesthood was not simply a matter of worthiness. It was also a matter of lineage. And if you're not from Levi, then you have no priesthood. And this group said at the beginning, of the children of the priests. I don't know if they just got mixed up among the, the, the Levites at some point back in their past, if they moved into a Levit Levitical city, not realizing and just assumed that I, we must be related to everybody else. But once it came down time to, to draw the, the connections and see your family tree, they couldn't see where they fit into it. And without proof of priesthood, or proof of, of connection to Levi, I should say, then there was no possibility for priesthood for them. And they were put from it. Now, you want to talk about some psychological displacement of broken walls and destroyed temple, I don't even know who I am anymore. Am I of Israel? The first group would ask. This group, do I have right to priesthood? Am I a Levite or not? I don't know. And in the absence, I can't act as if I were one. And so they're set apart from, from the Levites. There's actually a fascinating verse in section 85 of the Doctrine and Covenants that draws upon this obscure passage from Ezra 2. It's section 85, verse 11 and 12, and it says that they who are of the high priesthood, whose names are not found written in the book of the law, or that are found to have apostatized, or to have been cut off from the church, as well as the lesser priesthood or the members, in that day shall not find an inheritance among the saints of the Most High. Therefore it shall be done unto them as unto the children of the priest, as will be found recorded in the second chapter and 61st and 2nd verses of Ezra. Well, I guess the Lord knows his Old Testament, obviously. I guess Joseph Smith does too. Uh, to find this passage buried in Ezra chapter 2, and yet they see its relevance among the early saints. Now, it wasn't priesthood alone for them. It started that way. They who are of the high priesthood. And then it adds, oh, and the lesser priesthood too. Oh, what the heck, members in general. Let's just apply this across the board to all of us. If your name isn't written in the book of the law, if your name isn't among the consecrating and consecrated saints that have given their all, if your name's not among those who are trying to live up to their stewardship and take it seriously, then there's a separation here. How about those who have apostatized? Well, there's definitely a separation that's been self-inflicted or how about those who have been cut off from the church because of oh, iniquity? The things that get one excommunicated in disciplinary councils. All of those situations apply and find a parallel in that passage in Ezra 2. You won't find your inheritance among the saints of God. 
And again, there is not just a social displacement. I'm not part of this family anymore, but that leads to a psychological displacement. I don't even know who I am anymore. Honestly, the people that I worry most about in that verse are those who have apostatized. In our day, we call them those who have taken their name or have removed their name from the records of the church. They did that themselves. Their names are not found written in the book of the law because they asked to have them eliminated. And my heart goes out to them because there is usually a sense of, of displacement and of loss. Now, they might not care about a loss of faith or of testimony. For them, it's like good riddance to that. But loss of community, a loss of friends or close connections to family members, it doesn't have to be that way, by the way. If we can reach out in love and kindness and empathy and understanding, then they do, there does not have to be the level of separation that they might fear. They may seek a certain level of separation as they feel that they're just on different paths and they don't want to feel judged by those that are still within the faith. But there's something here I w that I think we need to wrestle with as far as being separate and being cut off and not finding an inheritance among the saints. I'm grateful the father of the prodigal son never did anything that kept that boy from wanting to come back home once he came to himself. And we can do better at that ourselves. But this particular group heading back to Jerusalem to help rebuild, that's going to be a psychic blow. I don't even know if I'm a part of this story. I don't know what stories belong to me. I hope that we can do a better job of knowing who we are and where we come from. And family history work can be an amazing blessing along those lines. Now there's another blessing that's hinted at in verse 63. Well, what do we do? There's no proof that they're of the tribe of Levi, but might they be? And they just can't show it? Well, verse 63 suggests another option. The Tershatha, which means the governor, that's, uh, Nehemiah is going to be one of those. Uh, in this case, it's most likely Sheshbazar. He said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim. Eating of the most holy things was priesthood prerogative as well. And so this leader says, yeah, you better not do that. To be on, let's err on the side of safety. Uh, and since you don't know that you're priesthood, don't act as if you were. And how can we find out if you actually are priesthood since you have no evidence or records yourself? Well, let's wait for a priest with a Urim and Thummim. Those revelatory instruments. And this, in our day, this reminds me of patriarchs. What? family tree am I a part of as far as house of Israel is concerned? What is my tribal inheritance? And a patriarch with Urim and Thummim of sorts, that gift of discernment that comes with his holy office, he can help us know. I am so amazed at the, the clarity my patriarchal blessing has brought to me. As far as finding my temple and finding my walls, my purpose and my identity, it is so powerfully spelled out for me in my patriarchal blessing, which actually makes me feel bad for people who haven't seen that in theirs. And I would not blame the patriarch. It's tragic. There are people who have left the church that have created websites so that ex-Latter-day Saints can compare their patriarchal blessings and mock the whole idea that inspiration to a stranger is even possible. 
And they tried to dilute it all down to say, hey, they're all pretty much interchangeable and I'll, I'll swap my blessing for yours since they're all, oh, these vague promises that, that don't, don't have enough specificity to really help me identify my purpose or, or, or sense of self at all. That's not on the patriarch. That's on us as recipients of the blessing. Are we seeking the same confirming and clarifying spirit? Are we picking up our own Urim and Thummim or just assigning it out and assuming that the patriarch is supposed to do all the work himself? No. Just like priesthood blessings rely on the power and priesthood of the person, but also on the faith of the recipient of that blessing, the same is true of patriarchal blessings. And so ask for that discernment, seek that revelation, and you will come to see yourself in ways that you couldn't otherwise. I, I do love, as, as inapplicable as chapter 2 of Ezra seems, with those long lists of, of obscure names, I do love its ending to help us see there are ways for us to find out who we really are. And that's going to help us rebuild. As the chapter comes to its close in verse 64, it, we get the whole number. The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score. Which makes me wonder, is that going to be enough to rebuild the temple and walls of Jerusalem? Well, we'll see. At least they're going to give it their all. In verse 68 and 9, some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, at least its ruins, which was at Jerusalem, they offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work. It's a great phrase. We may be few in number. We may not totally know who we are, but if we know enough to give our all to God, then give according to your ability. If you have more, give more. If you have less, then the widow's might is all the Lord is asking. But these people come, the Spirit has lifted them up, they have a sense of, of who they are and who they're supposed to be serving, and so they come running to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. Well, they're going to start by rebuilding something else first. And in Ezra chapter 3, that is the altar of the temple. In verse 1, when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. How oh, unity is required to build Zion because Zion is defined by its unity, right? City of Enoch, one heart, one mind here, one man. Dwelling in righteousness, no poor among them. We'll see all of those in today's material. Uh, and to understand that from the very beginning, if we want to rebuild the kingdom of God, then it's going to require a unity beyond anything we've had before. This is John 17, the great intercessory prayer. As Jesus prays right before Gethsemane, Please, Father, bless my followers to become one. True, truly one. So, they can, so that they can become truly mine. If you are not one, you are not mine. That's, that applies here too. In verse 2, Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and his brethren, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. At first, off the bat, that's what we have to start with. Start with sacrifice. In, in our case, the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Repent of your sins. There's no more important preliminary step towards rebuilding. Leave the past behind. Move toward a more glorious future. And so build an altar where we can, 
we can get rid of the things that we shouldn't be holding on to. Or we can offer to God the things that are best given to him. Notice also the names, Jeshua and Zerubbabel. They both seem to be associated with priesthood. There's Jeshua, his brethren, the priests. And Zerubbabel, like I said, his name will forever remain synonymous with the temple of God. The name meanings are interesting. Jeshua is a play off Joshua, which is a play on Jesus, which means salvation or Jehovah saves. So here you come, sal here comes salvation to you. Jesus, Joshua, Jeshua. And here comes Zerubbabel. His name's a weird one. Babel, Babel, Babylon. Yep, that's where it comes from. Zerubbabel means the sown by Babylon or seed of Babylon. Well, that doesn't sound very promising for an Israelite. Then again, who better to personify leaving those seeds behind and replanting in promised land? I love the combination of these two. We'll see them hinted at later uh, in the prophetic books. In a way, you can see them hinted at even in the book of Revelation uh, as, as embodiments or, or personifications of the need to rebuild things in the latter days. And so you take Jehovah saves and you take someone sown in Babylon but leaving Babylon behind. Come forward and rebuild the house of God. Start with sacrifice. In verse 4, they kept also the feast of tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. We saw Passover re-celebrated during Hezekiah's reforms and Josiah's reforms last week. And here it's the feast of tabernacles. Well, first of all, religious reform, what better sacrifice or, or, or festival celebration than Passover? The death of the Lamb of God, the death of the firstborn, freed by the blood of the Lamb so that we can come out of bondage. It's perfect. But the Feast of Tabernacles is not far behind. That was the feast that celebrated the wilderness wanderings where God covered them. There's the atonement verb again. Where he led them by a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke to help them find their way to a promised land where they could build their lives. Well, isn't this an echo of all of that? God has cared for us, not just the 40 years of Moses' wilderness wanderings, but the 70 years of our captivity in Babylon. And he's bringing us home. Pillar of fire, cloud of smoke, where we get to go back to the promised land and start over again. Feast of Tabernacles is a perfect thing to celebrate here. And even tabernacles, a tent, a tent of testimony, and now a temple of God coverings either way. In verse 5, afterwards offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So even before the temple was begun, in some ways, you could call this a foundation for the foundation. Preliminary steps to get us to a point that we're even ready to rebuild. Think about, for example, if you're trying to prepare for the temple, because it's not just temple worthiness, it's temple readiness. That verse has some great advice for you. How about continual burnt offerings? Are we continually living the gospel of Jesus Christ, or is it just a little here and a little effort there? 
uh, is it too intermittent for us to truly be ready to make lifelong covenants to follow God? Or even this idea of new moons and set feasts. It's amazing to see that the Jewish calendar, it created sacred time. The Temple Mount was sacred space. The Jewish festivals were, was sacred time. And if you can literally organize your life around the Lord, space and time, put a temple at its center, have holy days that help you pass through the, the, the year, Sabbaths every week. We would include Christmas and Easter and might as well throw in Pioneer Day and, and so many of these, these moments that help us remember these are, the, these are the things we celebrate. These are the family traditions we create. This is who we are, the things that matter most to us. So even before they have their temple and walls, we're moving in that direction. And once that becomes free will instead of forced, you're ready for the temple yourself. Keep reading. In verse 7, they gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and unto them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Sound familiar from our lesson on cedar and gold when we were talking about the Temple of Solomon? They're building it just like it was built before. Cedar trees from Lebanon, just as Solomon has, had done. And to see that they're doing this according to the grant from King Cyrus, I carved out space and, and permission and gave you money. I'm trying to make this as feasible as possible for you Jews. And to see what the Lord is doing, granting us opportunities to change, granting us second chances. Are we using them the way the Lord intends? Gratefully, they were. We must as well. In verse 8, Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, began Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come up out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Now in Hezekiah's day, remember it was the first month and the first year, and he's going for it. Uh, this is the second year and the second month. And like I said, Haggai is going to have some words about that that we'll see when we get to his book. But when they're finally setting forward, it is full speed ahead. They set forward the work of the house of the Lord. In verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel, properly dressed, holy garments. They were there with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. Trumpets and cymbals. We're going with brass and percussion on this orchestra. Forget the, the strings and the woodwinds. You're just not loud enough. And we need to trumpet out our joy and cymbal crash our excitement that the temple of God is being, is being centered again. It's giving us a sense of purpose and giving us something to revolve our lives around. In verse 11, no wonder they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. Honestly, the fact that you're back in Israel at all, back in Jerusalem is evidence, proof of all of that. And all the people shouted with a great shout 
sound like the Hosanna shout at our temple dedications or rededications. They gave a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They're just barely beginning, but they're already celebrating as if it were all done. Rejoicing in things to come as though they already had come. The work has begun, and now it's only a matter of time, if we remain diligent before it's all finished. Now you think there's excitement and, and gratitude and praise on the parts of, of those that had come back to Jerusalem? Well, imagine the ones that were old enough to remember what Jerusalem had been 70 years before. A lot of the people of 42,000 that had come, a lot of them would have been too young to remember. Sure, they were raised on stories, right? The stories that made them who they were as they, as they gathered around oh, and wept at the rivers of Babylon. We'll see that in the Psalms. To, to pass down to posterity that sense of identity and a sense of loss because of the, the destruction of the temple. They would have come back and been so thrilled to just begin something they had heard stories about. But the old timers, you want to talk about a whole other depth of feeling. You want to talk about trumpet blasts and cymbal crashes. I'm old enough to remember as a little boy what it was like to see the sun shine off the gleaming gold of the temple of Solomon. I'm old enough to remember the sweet savors of the sacrifices as they rose to heaven, especially if they were among the righteous that were spared in the destruction of Jerusalem. What the temple would mean to them, what the loss of the temple would mean as far as their own devastation, but to come back and help rebuild, to lay the foundation again. That's why I love verse 12 and 13. Many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men, 70 years old or over, that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. And many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Oh, there can be different displays of the same common emotion. They all felt something deep. And for some, it was effused in tears. and others, it was effused in shouts. But for them to be able to vent the, oh, the, the sense of loss, but also the sense of gain. What a moment. I can only imagine... At the dedication of the Nauvoo Temple, for example, the rededication of the, re, of the newly rebuilt Nauvoo Temple, no one was old enough to have lived to see the original. Oh, but President Hinckley, you, you would have thought he was a kid that grew up in Nauvoo, the way he felt. That his, the dedication and the way he spoke of the temple and just how, want, how much he wanted it to be as close to the original as it could possibly be. Can you imagine the pioneers, those early saints, looking down from the spirit world and seeing the Nauvoo Temple rise again, phoenix from the ashes? Imagine what the Lord must feel, or what He will feel when a temple is built again in Jerusalem. Imagine what Joseph and Hiram and Brigham and John and Parley and Heber must feel 
when we are finally able to build Zion in Jackson County, Missouri. Well, we're, we're getting a glimpse of that as, as this is happening with the Temple of Zerubbabel, rising from the ashes of the Temple of Solomon. Now, as excited as these people were, unfortunately, there were others that weren't so excited about a rebuilt temple because, again, that was going to give the Jews a, a, a focal point, a center of gravity, something that would help remind them of who they really were. And in chapter 4 of Ezra, you see those that are going to come and, and try to hinder the work. Ironically, it's people that were half involved in it themselves, or should have been, namely the Samaritans. You remember when they were intermixed with all the other conquered peoples by the Assyrians, that they're only half Jew, half Israelite. The other half is whatever else it might be, and it becomes this watered-down version of things as they've combine all kinds of different beliefs and different gods and, and goddesses. In chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, let's meet some of these adversaries. The rest of the chapter is going to make it clear that, yes, they were Samaritans among them. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esar Hadan, king of Asur, which brought us up hither. They're leaning on their Israelite half. Hey, we're just like you, almost. Uh, we worship the same God, almost. So can we help? We really want to build the temple, too. Now, that was, like I said, only half true. And in reality, they were only offering help in hopes that they could actually be a hindrance. And we're going to see their efforts intensify as time goes on. Yeah, we have to be careful about those that come claiming to be on our side when they really aren't. These are the wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter and in a few later ones. It's interesting to be in the world of anti-Mormonism and to study it in hopes of helping people navigate uh, their own faith crises. But to see that so much of it comes from people who claim to seek our God as we do, from people who are former Latter-day Saints and will say things like, oh, I love the church, even though it's demonstrably false. Like, uh, demonstrably false. You don't understand the nature of faith to begin with, uh, and you have completely jettisoned half of the evidence in favor of evidence that you claim is making it a slam-dunk case for the prosecution. That's not how it works, first of all. But I, I would just caution all of us to oh, check people's credentials, so to speak, when it comes to people who are trying to explain church history or ch explain church policy or doctrine. Uh, are they really trying to build the kingdom or have they come in hopes of having easier access to tear it down? That's the hard part when it's coming from ex-Latter-day Saints, from Samaritans of sorts that have partial claim to, to a family tradition within the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, but have leaned into their Assyrian side and care more for the philosophies of men. Now, Zerubbabel and Jeshua uh, see through this. They understand like, no, I don't think you're really on our side after all. And so they tell them in verse 3, ye have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel.
Yeah, I know there's only 42,000 of us, and it, it's going to require all hands on deck, but at least people are giving not just all hands, but all heart. At least we have come as one man, and we're not divided in the work. We certainly don't want to be divided by you, who's divided yourself between an ancestry that is partially the people of God and partially the people of, of something else. And so, no, you have nothing to do with it. We'll do this ourselves. It is good to be trusting, don't get me wrong. But it's also wise to be careful, to be discerning, to seek partners in building the kingdom, partners in building a marriage, partners in building a family that are worthy of your trust and that you know that. They can prove it by their register, so to speak, by their, by their behavior, their walk and their talk. In verse 4 and 5, Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, this is where their true colors come shining through. The, the, the sheep's clothing is off because it didn't work. And there was a wolf under there the whole time. Despite the fact they were offering help at the beginning, no, once they're rebuffed, once, that you, once you see through that, and start pushing back a little, then usually it becomes much more obvious that they're not on your side at all, and they don't have your best interests at heart. Now notice what they're doing more overtly in verse 4 and 5, though. It said that they weakened the hands of the workers, and they troubled them during the building. How did they do that? Well, I'm not sure, but notice the next phrase, they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. We'll see in the rest of this chapter exactly how they do this, but notice it's counsel. It's, it's weakening and troubling, but it's by words. There doesn't seem to be any physical persecution going on quite yet. And so this has become a war of words and a tumult of opinions. It's counselors out there saying certain things, trying to frustrate the Lord's work. Will we let them? Or will we see through their rhetoric and understand that no, you, you aren't proving your case. You're simply taking certain parts of church history out of context or only allowing one side to tell their story and not the other side to, to rebut. And what's most obvious throughout it all is your purpose and your goal to frustrate the Lord's purpose, to, to stop the church from trying to help bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. But that begs the question, what are you doing in its place? Okay, I know you're trying to deconstruct my faith, but what are you constructing on your side? And honestly, I don't see much there. As I've seen people that are trying to tear down testimony and, and weaken people spiritually, what are you replacing it with? There was a great book called Crisis of Doubt. We talk about crisis of faith, but this is a great book, Crisis of Doubt. It's a historical one uh, based in 19th century Great Britain. And it deals with a bunch of people that were leaders within the secularist movement. Yeah, it's old. Uh, and these were secular humanists before the word really caught on as they're trying to tear down faith. These are not, they're not former Latter-day Saints. This is not anti-Mormonism. It's just anti-Christianity. But the book tells the story of a handful of these secularist leaders who eventually returned to full faith in Christian churches. It's a great book. And it's because each of these men had a crisis of doubt. They had had a crisis of faith that led them out of the church, but then they had a crisis of doubt that led them back into it. And part of that crisis was, 
what are we doing really? We're doing a lot of deconstruction, but I don't see much reconstruction going on. What are we replacing religion with? Or are we just here demolishing things and, and shattering stained glass windows and tearing down steeples from church sp and church spires? There's got to be something more to it than this. And once they started questioning their own motives and their own goals, it actually softened their hearts to the point that they dusted off their old Bibles and began to reread them less cynically. And as they began to re-explore with a softened heart, the Spirit touched those hearts and, real, and they realized, there's actually something here. I know that was 19th century Christian Britain, but I do see similar things happening among certain 21st century Latter-day Saints when they begin to doubt their doubts and wonder uh, what they've been building, if anything, versus all the efforts that they've made to try to tear things down. Well, let's see a little bit more closely exactly what these people are doing to try to hinder the work. It mentioned that this was happening from the reign of Cyrus down to the reign of Darius. We're going to add in here the reigns of Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes, uh, and they're all mentioned in the narrative as well. And what happens is these enemies end up writing letters to the kings of Persia, making all kinds of accusations against the, the Jews. The Jews are claiming to have royal sanction, kingly permission to go rebuild things. And so we somehow need to get the kings off their side and onto ours. So let's write some things in their direction. Verse 12, this is what they said. Be it known unto the king, whichever one you happen to be, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, Darius, you name it that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city, and have set up the walls thereof and joined the foundations. Do you have any idea what's happening out here on the east or the western edge of your empire? Not good news for you, because the city that's being rebuilt, rebuilt is a rebellious one. It's a bad one. They are calling into question their, the, the Israelites' loyalty, and they're calling into question the Israelites' goodness. It's interesting that we see the same thing happening in our day and throughout church history. Think about the Missouri years and the extermination order. And how are the saints being described? Oh, they're rebellious. They are a political danger. I mean, they let, they let free blacks into their church. And we can't let that happen here in a slave state like Missouri. So we've got to drive them out. And all kinds of anti-Mormon persecution in the Missouri period was prompted by racial prejudice. Since the Latter-day Saints didn't share in the same racial prejudices, by and large, that the Southern Missourians did. On the other hand, there's also this sense of they're just not good. They are a bad people. And so it's not just a political danger, it's a moral one. That bad can be translated as evil or as wicked. And... I mean, think about the anti-polygamy legislation. That was all to, to, to tear down this, these bad, immoral people when that was not what was behind plural marriage. If anything, it was the people attacking plural marriage that, were that typically were more guilty of immorality. Oh, if, if all it is that you want is sexuality, there are easier ways to do it than to take on whole new families to provide for. In our own day, we see similar problems. The, the new Hulu uh, series, Under the Banner of Heaven, is another attempt at people trying to paint the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as rebellious and bad. That's it. It's inherently violent. It's going to cause problems, so they need to be opposed by any means possible. 
Now remember, this is being, these are letters being sent back to the people in positions of power. And you think about academia, you think about Hollywood, you think about centers of government. What is their impression of Latter-day Saints? And what impression do they give others about the Latter-day Saints? That kind of opposition can stand in the way of the work. Well, in verse 13, they continue their letter. Be it known now unto the king that if this city be builded and the walls set up again, that they will not pay toll, tribute, and custom, and so thou shalt endamage the revenue of the kings. So not just a political danger or a moral one, but they will pose an economic danger too. Every once in a while, I will hear oh, rumors out there that there are people trying to take away the church's tax-exempt status. Oh, the LDS church is too political. They're telling their people how to vote. No, they're not. They're telling their people to vote, but not how to do so or who to vote for. Oh, and tax-exempt status. Oh, they won't pay toll. They won't pay tribute. They won't be loyal citizens. Actually, that's one of the things that has allowed the church to enter countries that have been hesitant to let missionaries in because we've been able to show what good citizens Latter-day Saints tend to be of whatever government they are, they are under. Well, these letters continue to urge the Persian kings to, to oppose the Jews at all costs. In fact, they tell them, go search your own records. Search the, the historical records and you'll see Jerusalem's character. You'll see that it has a history of rebellion and sedition. Now, okay, I guess you could say that. Uh, there have been a lot of wars that we saw I mean, with the last couple of weeks in Second Kings. We saw wars left and right. But those weren't typically to extend Israel's borders. It was simply to maintain their own sovereignty. And there's a huge difference there. And remember, the Persian plan was live and let live. Well, that goes along perfectly with the Jewish plan. We just want the land of promise promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's it. We're not trying to become an, Assyri uh, uh, an Israelite empire like Assyrians or Babylonians or Persians have. No. So search your historical records. Well, fine, but make sure you understand them. I mean, if you look at verse 19 and 20, this is what they were promising they'd find in their, in their historical search. It is found that this city of old time hath made insurrection against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made therein. There have been mighty kings also over Jerusalem, which have ruled over all countries beyond the river, and toll, tribute, and custom was paid unto them. Oh, check those records, kings of Persia. And you will see you had counterparts over here in Israel, and they were mighty kings that people paid toll and tribute to themselves. But again, look a little deeper, look a little harder. And was Solomon exacting tribute because of military might? Or were people simply coming because they were in awe of his wisdom and offering gifts to him as a result? You see, what's interesting about studying historical records, and as a historian myself, especially one who has to grapple with a lot of the tricky parts of church history, what's interesting to me in this context is that the enemies of Israel were trying to use Israel's history against them. And they were trying to pull and kind of cherry pick out parts of Israelite history to paint a picture that was decidedly negative, to make them look rebellious and bad. And again, whether it was political or, or moral or economic, they were, are they going to be a threat to you? Is it possible to piece together a picture of LDS church history that is negative? Oh, yeah. 
I've often said to people, if a couple decided they wanted to get divorced, do you think they could find evidence to justify their decision? And the answer, of course, is yes. Even in the best of marriages, you could do that if you wanted to. You would just have to ignore all the things that made the marriage uh, one worth holding on to to begin with or entering into from the start. And the same is true of the flip side. If you decided you wanted to remain married, could you find evidence to justify that decision? Again, of course. Even in the worst of marriages, you could. That's why you got married to start. Well, in the history of the church, is there enough evidence if you wanted to leave the church, could you justify your decision? Sure. If you wanted to stay, could the history of the church justify that decision? Yes. And so there we are with a choice to make. And so much of it revolves around weighing different parts of the story, uh, allowing for the lawyers of, for the defense to cross-examine the witnesses for the lawyers from the prosecution, to provide counter evidence, and to weigh the results of the verdict that is going to be made. To me, it's, it's unfair that so much of, those, uh, of the attacks against the history of the church are very selective in their presentation of history. And often they are decontextualizing things. You want to throw out the Mountain Meadows Massacre? Fine. It was a horrible moment in church history. But read the history. Read it all, as much of it as you can. And although it will never make that massacre excusable, it does make it more understandable. What the saints were going through and what was happening at the time period. Now oh, these are hard things. I love what Rick Turley used to say. He was the, used to be the... the assistant church historian, and he knew his stuff, and he'd always say to people, don't study church history too little. If you're going to study it, study it all the way. Uh, at least get past the one-sided negative approach that many ex-Latter-day Saints are trying to force upon you without any of the positive story to, to help compare things. To help. I remember one anti-Mormon said to me personally, he said, this was a, ne a never member of the church, but one who wanted to attack it. And he said, you Mormons are banking on your members not learning their history because the moment they learn a little, they're out. And I said, well, you're, you're right in terms of as, as soon as they learn a little, as long as it's your little, the little you're trying to give them. Because with all due respect, it's actually you that doesn't want them to study church history enough. I don't know of another church that spends more time focusing on its own history than us and teaching it to, our, to its, our members. But I can see why you'd want to give them just enough history to destabilize them and not enough of the rest of the history to help them get their feet underneath them again. It's that Dunning-Kruger effect. The moment you learn a little, your confidence skyrockets and you think you know the whole story. Uh, they call that the peak of Mount Stupid. It's like, I saw a TED talk about this, so it must be true. Well, it may be true, but it might only be half true. This is coming from the Samaritans, after all. And they only, they only personify half the story themselves. Anyway, I don't want to belabor the point any more than I already have. Forgive me. But when it comes to studying history, since that's what these enemies of Israel are using against them, please be careful to get the whole story. Don't end your homework early if you're starting to freak out over things that you've studied or heard or seen. Now keep reading. Still in Ezra 4, now in verse 21, the Persian king responds, Okay, I've gotten your letters. What am I going to do about it? Well, unfortunately, having 
been fed the negative side of Israel's history. They say, give ye now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that the city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be permanent, but at least for now, you do kind of have me freaked out. And so we're going to stop the work until we understand what's going on here. Those rumors, those false reports, those historical half-truths, they worked. And the kings of Persia said, stop, cease the work of reconstruction. You find more modern parallels in the extermination order in Missouri. What are the Mormons up to? And the, the powers that be said, we got to get them out. We see the same problem in, in Illinois with the repeal of the Nauvoo Charter. The powers that be are starting to freak out over the possible powers of the people in Nauvoo, and we got to stop that. Uh, we see that with the anti-polygamy legislation against Latter-day Saints during the 1870s and 80s. We see it when the U.S. House of Representatives refused to seat someone who was duly elected, B.H. Roberts because he was a Latter-day Saint, or the Reed Smoot hearings when the U.S. Senate said, over our dead body will we let a Latter-day Saint be a U.S. Senator. Uh, so much of it is just hearing rumors and false reports and historical half-truths and not getting the full story. So be careful with your history. In verse 23 and 4, as soon as the Samaritans received Artaxerxes' letter, they went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. The first time it was just wars of words. Now they can use force and power. This is a, a political power play because they've, they've got the kings of Persia on their side now. And whether that's Johnston's army being sent to, to quell the so-called Mormon rebellion in 1857. Oh, you have nothing to fear from the faith of the Latter-day Saints. There is goodness here. It's not a bad city. There is loyalty and righteous citizenship here. It's not a rebellious city. We're simply trying to live the gospel of Jesus Christ and render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but also render to God what belongs to God. Well, in chapter 5, what are we going to do now? The Samaritans, it worked, and the Persians are against us, and how will the work ever continue? In verse 1, well, what's God's solution always? It's sending prophets. And here comes a few that we'll come to meet a little more later on. Then the prophets, Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edu. We'll see both of their books later on. They prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. So these chapters will provide the historical context for the prophetic books that we're going to see later on. We're going to have to weave the two together there. But as we'll see in Haggai particularly, it, there is a message there about delaying the work of the temple. Uh, in a similar way, you study the Doctrine and Covenants revelations. What's, take, what's the holdup in Jackson County, Missouri? Why aren't you building the temple there? That's the only solution to your problems. And the saints are like, no, that, that's the cause of our problems. If we build the temple, it shows that we're planning on staying and we just agreed to leave. Uh, they're afraid that we're rebellious and bad. Then show them that they're wrong. Stay and prove it by the way you treat them, by the way you turn the other cheek and handle the opposition and persecution they throw at you. Begin to build the temple. The saints couldn't bring themselves to do it. Well, we'll see Haggai's efforts and Zechariah's efforts to have a different result among ancient Israel. But again, this is the context out of which those books grow. 
But back to the history, verse 2, Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak. There's the, our two heroes for our, our story so far. Yes, it's called the book of Ezra, but we haven't met him yet. These two began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. You want to talk about a good source of that kind of help? Look no further than the prophets. Look to a Jeshua, Jehovah saves. Look to a Zerubbabel, one who leaves the seed of Babylon behind him. Look to a Haggai or a Zechariah and realize these prophets are providing all the help you need to recenter your life upon the Lord. Now, of course, there's going to be opposition. And sadly, the opposition increases from these outsiders. What they end up doing, they, they, they demand, who's, who's doing this? Who's behind this reconstruction? But verse 5 the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease till the matter came to Darius. And then they returned answer by letter concerning the matter. Oh, they're, they can't do it on their own. They need political pressures to, to stop the work of God. And so I can't stop it myself. We're going to send another letter. We, it worked the first time. Let's see what's going on. And so they send this letter back. And in verse 8, it says, Be it known unto the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God, which is builded with great stones and timber is laid in the walls. And this work goeth fast on and prospereth in their hands. Do you have any idea what's happening here in this rebellious and bad city? They resumed the work, even though we thought we had put an end to it. We thought you had put an end to it. Well, we asked them in verse 9, who commanded you to build this house and to make up these walls? And in verse 11, the elders answered, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and build the house that was builded these many years ago, which a great king of Israel builded and set up. We're just picking up where Solomon left off. We are doing what God has commanded, and you're not going to stand in our way. Well, unfortunately, the adversarial letter continues, verse 12, After our fathers had provoked the God of heaven unto wrath, so he's st they're still quoting these Jewish leaders, explaining what they're up to. We provoked the God of heaven unto wrath. And he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried the people away into Babylon. We're just trying to give you our version of the history. So yes, we were rebellious, but not against the foreign kings. We were rebellious against our own. Yes, we were a bad city, but not by worldly standards, by divine ones. And that's why we were destroyed by the Babylonians. We got carried off into Babylon. That's where you took over from there. But, but notice what happened next. In verse 13 through 16, he describes what Cyrus did. Your own king. Do you not know your own history well enough to realize that your king gave us permission to return? You see, time has passed. It's hard to tell as you go through the chapters in Ezra just how much time is passing, but we've gone through multiple kings of Persia. And evidently they forgot what Cyrus had done at the very start of his reign. Well, the Israelites haven't forgotten. So yes, part of our problems are on us. That was humble of them to admit. That's like revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants that say, yeah, Missouri persecution, some of it was of the fault of the Missourians. But some of it, yes, you Latter-day Saints brought upon yourselves. And they're admitting that. But by the time you get to verse 17, and they've reminded the Persian kings of what Cyrus had promised, they say, Now therefore, if it seem good to the king, let there be search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, whether it be so that a decree was made of Cyrus the king to build this house of God at Jerusalem. 
and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning this matter. Now we're back to this history lesson I've been wrestling with. This time, it's the Jews that are saying, oh yeah, read our history. The first time it was the enemies saying, read Israel's history and you'll see their problems. Now the Jews are saying, oh, please do read our history. In fact, read your history too. And you will see the positive side of it. You'll see that we had permission from your own king to come home and rebuild. As I said earlier already, history, oh, it's a two-edged sword. And the same stories that might oh, cause you to struggle in your faith can also lead you to strengthen your faith. Just, <laughs> you're the judge. Get past the lawyers for the prosecution and, and hear the lawyers for the defense. I have no problem in hearing from the lawyers for the prosecution. I know that side of church history too. And it can be messy. It can be sticky. There were human beings behind it all. But there was also a God in heaven that was guiding people to be better than they otherwise could be. There is inspiration, there is revelation, there's prophecy, there's visions, there is miracle. And it's amazing what the history of the church can provide. You want to, you want to read it? Fine, read it all. And in this case, history will, will serve the Israelites well. You see that as you turn to chapter 6. Because King Darius, who's on the throne at this point, does indeed search through the palace, finds this scroll. And in verse 3, when he reads it, it says, In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid. He didn't just want the temple. He wanted it to, be, to go up and go up well. So, shocked that that was actually the case, King Darius sends a letter back to those adversaries who'd halted the work to begin with. And he says to them in verse 6 and 7, Be ye far from thence. Get out of there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. History stood on the side of the Jews after all. And there is power in knowing our past to help us navigate our present and emerge into a more glorious future. It's important to know about religious liberty. It's important to understand the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and wrestle with the difference between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. It's important to understand the kinds of things that President Oaks is doing, like in his fairly recent address at the University of Virginia, as he was wrestling with the balance between religious liberties and non-discrimination. Oh, these are things that will help us navigate the, the last days and it definitely helped these Israelites navigate it in the days of Zerubbabel. In verse 8 through 10, the king goes on. He commands, Forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. Let me help cover the cost of construction. And that which they have need of, so if that's animals for the offerings or anything else, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the Lord of heaven. And pray for the life of the king and of his sons. He even threatened anybody who might alter this decree or stand in the way of it. I will tear down your own house, set up a scaffolding out of whatever timber is left. I will hang you from it and then turn the remains of your home into a dung hill. Is that ser serious enough for you? 
I'll tear down your house if you try to interfere with the construction of the house of God. How's that for some poetic justice? This is a Persian king trusting not so much the Israelites, but trusting his own king's prior decree. If they were okay for Cyrus, then they're okay by me. And so let's go help instead of hinder. And I love the way he ended there. Let them build it so they can send sacrifices up to their God in order to pray for my life and my son's lives. If they're not bad, if they're not rebellious, if they can be loyal, then they can be helpful. And perhaps their worship can even end up being a blessing to me. In a way, when Isaiah talks about the house of Israel being nursed and carried by kings and queens who become their nursing fathers and nursing mothers, I get a sense here that the Persians are among those nursing fathers and helping them come back home. We'll, we see that in modern equivalents where Latter-day Saints have risen uh, in government, in, in military, in business, just in, in positions of influence where those with greater influence realize these Latter-day Saints do have something to offer. They can pray for the strength of the king and make a difference in our community. So we must. In verse 14, as a result of all of this, the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple's done. Uh, it's a little bit understated there in that verse, but they did it. The prophets had promised it would be that way. The kings, foreign kings, are helping them along. Wow, it's amazing what's happening here. Then in verse 16, once the temple is finished, the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. There's a rededication. This is compared to Hezekiah and to Josiah from last week. This is another keeping of the Passover to celebrate that kind of redemption. In verse 21, the children of Israel, which were come out again out of captivity, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat. So they kept the Passover. Not only that, but they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days, and they kept it with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, I know it said king of Assyria. Let that be your geographical designation, not your political one. These are kings of Persia. But the Persians took over the Assyrian Empire after the Babylonians had done the same. And so that's why they're called that. Regardless of it, they strengthened the hands of those that were working on the house of God and went from hindrance to help. And who's rejoicing? No, oh, it's a time of joy, you better believe it. But it's those that are clean and worthy and those who became, became clean and worthy, separating themselves from the filthiness of the land. And honestly, that's the power of, of the house of God. It attracts people. It draws them into its influence. That's why Isaiah will say that all nations will flow unto it. Here you see that happening. They are coming. They want to participate in Passover, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They want to be a part of this temple rededication. We see it every time there's a temple open house, and people just want to come in and see. What is it that is happening here? What is it 
that I'm feeling as I go through this tour. It's amazing. And we can help spread that influence. In chapter 7 of Ezra, we finally get to meet our title character. He is finally mentioned in verse 1. His genealogy is presented. It connects him all the way back to Aaron and gives him all kinds of links in the generation, but not enough to make it an unbroken chain. Uh, so it's skipped over a lot. And like I said before, this whole book skips over a lot because by the time you've gone through all this history, from the becoming of Cyrus, the letting them go back, uh, the cessation of the work, the rebeginning of it, the dedication of the temple, go on and then Nehemiah comes on board and they rebuild the city walls and all of this. I mean, we're talking a hundred years have passed through the course of it all. Uh, by the time Ezra shows up in chapter 7 of his book, a, a second wave of the remnant is returning to Jerusalem. And we see what he's come to do, starting in verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon. And like I said, he brings another wave of exiles back with him. This is about 60 years after the first group. Ezra was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Now, when it says that he was a ready scribe, ready means skilled. So Ezra, this is the verse that introduces him. And the first thing we really come to understand, here's a guy who knows the law of Moses inside and out. He is a skilled scribe, scribe, writing, reading in the text. He knows the word of God. He knows the law of Moses inside and out, and he's going to re-enthrone it among the people. Remember when that happened in the, in the days of King Josiah last week? When Hilkiah the priest is repairing the temple and he discovers this abandoned copy of the law and dusts it off and gives it back to King Josiah, who re-enthrones it among the people? Ezra is going to do the same thing. And there, as he's returning to Jerusalem with another wave of remnant, it's going to be the word of God, the law of the Lord that will center us. We're building temple. We're building purpose. And just like we saw it centered on the covenant in Abraham's day, centered on the law in Moses' day, centered on the temple through Solomon's day, it's all coming together again with Ezra. Some have called, in the scriptures, he's called Ezra the scribe. He's called Ezra the priest. He's both. Some have referred to him as a second Moses because he knew the law so well. And is, it's like he's coming down from Sinai with a fresh set of tablets. Some have even considered Ezra the father of modern Judaism because it is so centered on the law of God. Uh, especially as we shift away from temple towards synagogues during the time of Jesus and beyond. Oh, there's, Ezra is going to rise in Jewish estimation because of his focus on the law. In verse 10, what got him to that point? Love this verse. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. That's what it'll take. Preparing your heart to seek it. Heart in the right place. I'm, and again, I'm speaking to the choir as I so often do. I don't need to encourage your scripture study. You're here with me doing it. But to prepare your heart to seek at that level, the way Ezra the scribe did, and not only just to seek it, but then to do it and to teach it, it's such a great cycle there. Because if I'm seeking the law with full purpose of heart, then of course I'm going to want to do it. And if I'm doing it and feeling the blessings flow into my life, then how can I not share that with other people? That's what keeps me going every week. I have to teach these things because of their positive effect in my own life. 
But then once you learn them, since you're here seeking the law of the Lord, now you get to do it. And then the cycle continues because you want to teach it and share it with others who then live it, learn it and live it and share it to people who learn it and live it and share it. And pretty soon, oh, the truths of God cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. That's what we're aiming for. And Ezra is doing that himself. In verse 11, now this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. We just got to make sure we know Ezra for who he is. He's defined, as always, with his, by his focus on the word of God. And so he brings a letter home. We've seen all kinds of letters so far. Uh, and going back and forth, trying to explain what's going on. In this one, start in verse oh, 18 and 19. In this one, the king is affirming his willingness to let the Jews return to Jerusalem. Uh, Cyrus said he would, and I'm, I'm following through on his promise. He grants Ezra all kinds of silver and gold to buy additional animals for offerings at the temple. And then in verse 18, he adds, Whatsoever shall seem good to thee and to thy brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, whatever goes above and beyond what you need to buy animal offerings, that do after the will of your God. The vessels also that are given thee for the service of the house of thy God, those deliver thou before the God of Jerusalem. And whatsoever more shall be needful for the house of thy God, which thou shalt have occasion to bestow, bestow it out of the king's treasure house. This is as close to a blank check from the king of Persia as you can get. I'm giving you as much as I think you'll need uh, to cover all that animal sacrifice. Whatever's left over, you use it however your God says you should. Okay, I completely trust you, Ezra. I mean, you're defined by obedience to law. You know what God's will will be here. So do it. And if you need more, I mean, that's if I gave you too much. If I didn't give you enough, then anything you need, just ask for it, and I'll bestow it out of the king's treasure house. This actually reminds me of this parable of the Good Samaritan. In this case, it's the Good Persian. But what is it? Let me help you. Let me bring you to a place of safety and security. Let me help you home. And I'll take you to an inn, and that innkeeper can help. And anything that you need, above and beyond whatever I've paid you already, I'll pay you when I return again. That's the beauty of the Good Samaritan. There was not a limit to what he was offering. And the same is here true of this good Persian king. He reiterates all of this in verse 21, as he tells the treasurers in Israel, that whatsoever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, shall require of you, it be done speedily. How's that for total trust in this servant of the Lord? In verse 23, whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? We saw hints of that in the previous chapter. These Israelites are not rebellious and bad. They are loyal and good. And if they have a temple where they can worship their God, then maybe they can get their God on my side. I could use all the help I can get re, uh, ruling this kingdom. So in verse 21, it was do it speedily. And in 23, it was do it diligently. Are those adverbs that describe our work of re reconstruction? In verse 24, also we certify you that touching any of the priests and Levites, singers, porters, nethinims, which means those set apart, some other group of servants that's supposed to help the Levites, or ministers of this house of God, it shall not be lawful to impose toll, tribute, or custom upon them. I mentioned tax-exempt status earlier. 
from a previous letter. Well, here it's coming up again. And the king of Persia is not worried about them not providing economically for the kingdom. In fact, he wants to make sure that they don't have to. So these people don't impose taxes, tolls, tributes, or anything else. Let them do their work. The tax code is an interesting evidence of government priorities. And government priorities are supposed to grow out of, of what government is responsible, uh, responsible to provide. When the government discerns, for example, that home ownership helps communities as people take care of things they own, then the tax code can reflect that. It's an interesting auxiliary to, to the legal code. Uh, where there are laws set in place, the tax code doesn't set up laws, but it does set up oh, channels of behavior. Uh, it's in your economic best interest to have a, a home instead of renting because your, your mortgage interest will be tax deductible. Uh, it's in your best interest economically to have children. Now, that's shocking. Uh, at least as far as, the, as taxes are concerned. There will be a tax credit for children. Why would the government be doing something like that? because they recognize the value of children and family life for the good of society. Again, it's fascinating to read the tax code. Not, well, it's not fascinating to read the tax code. My father-in-law is a, an accountant, and he, and he knows it far better than I ever will. But it is interesting to see in some of its, its codes the priorities and the good it recognizes in certain lifestyles and behaviors. The fact that the government deems religious organizations tax-exempt should tell us something. That they recognize what society has long recognized. That churches are good for communities. That they help instill good principles in their members. That they contribute to the social welfare. And so they deserve to be tax-exempt. They're more than making up for it in terms of what they are providing to the common good. But back to the letter. Verse 25. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know them not. This is reminding me of Moses in Exodus chapter 18. You can't do everything yourself, Moses. And Ezra, you can't either. So teach people correct principles and let them govern themselves. Set judges in place, especially ones who know the word and the law of God as well as you do. And if they don't know it, well, I know that you'll teach them, as you always have. Ezra then speaks in the first person at the end of this chapter. We finally get to hear from him directly. And I love what he says in verse 27 and 8. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart. What a wonderful letter. I see God behind this, not just the kindness of the king of Persia. This will to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. He hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. I love that Ezra recognizes this isn't, these miracles, this kindness, this blank check. It's not just because Persia has a good king. It's because Israel does, and it's the king of kings. God has softened the heart of the king of Persia, and it was the Lord's mercy and strength shining through. 
Ezra recognizes the real source of his blessings, and that is something that we'll see throughout the remainder of his ministry. In chapter 8, as we go there, this chapter lists the heads of the families that returned to Jerusalem with Ezra. So you see another list like we saw back in chapter 2. But as they begin their journey, and Ezra looks around to see who's coming with him, he realizes that they're missing some really important fellow travelers. In verse 15, I viewed the people and the priests and found that there were none of the sons of Levi. Now, wait a minute. You just said you saw the priests. Well, there's a difference between common Levites and and priests. Priests are of a higher order, but you need the Levites to do a lot of the heavy lifting, uh, to do the ministry there, the daily rituals and sacrifices and so on. And for some reason, the priests seem to be more willing to return to Jerusalem than the Levites had. When Zerubbabel first took that first group in Ezra chapter 2, you do all the math, and it comes out to 4,289 priests that went with him, but only 74 general Levites. Hmm, That's a huge discrepancy. And we're seeing a similar problem here in the second wave under Ezra. The, The priests are coming, but the Levites are holding back. Is it because so much of that heavy lifting is done by the Levites? Is it them feeling like, "Ah, I've got it easy here in Babylon slash Persia. I got nothing to do because there's no temple that's requiring my labor. Have they kind of slipped into a certain comfortable inactivity because nothing is demanded? And man, life back in Israel, that kept me busy. I worry sometimes that what is keeping us from rebuilding is thinking that it's just going to require too much work. And is that what's holding them back, perhaps? Either way, that's got to change. And so Ezra sends word back in verse 17 that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding with his sons and his brethren. Remember what the New Testament says, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. And so pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into that harvest. Well, Ezra got his prayer answered, and here comes a man of understanding, bringing his sons and his brethren in tow. Uh, we're, we're ready to work. We're here to roll up our sleeves and get at it. Uh, no matter how beautiful our temples might be, no matter how filled with the Spirit those holy houses are, without people, without good, solid Levites, just salt of the earth, no-namers willing to roll up their sleeves and go serve, My parents are among those. My service missionary son is among those. Many of you that I've met online and in person are temple workers yourselves, and you are those men and women of understanding who the Lord has raised and invited you in, and you are doing some of the most important heavy lifting in the kingdom of God. I hope you see your equivalence there uh, in the book of Ezra. Later on in that chapter in verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, just as they're getting going on this journey, that we might afflict ourselves before our God. Now, that sounds really appropriate if you don't like fast Sunday and you feel like going hungry is an affliction. A better translation of that word, though, is humble. Let's humble ourselves before our God. And here's why. To seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. We just need divine help to find our way back home. We're on the Lord's errand, and we need the Lord's guidance. The next verse makes this even more interesting, where Ezra admits, For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. 
We knew we'd face opposition, and the king probably assumed it as well. So I was like, why don't we send you with a royal escort, military escort? We'll take care of you. And I told him not. I told him no. I was ashamed to require it of them. And here's why. Because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. You see, um, we bore our testimony to the king and told him that our God has everything under control and that our God preserves and protects the faithful. He shows them the way. I, we told him all those stories from ancient Israel about a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke and, and God's army and the Lord of hosts and the battle of Jericho and all these things. It's like, uh, I hope I didn't put my foot in my mouth. Uh, but by putting all my trust in God, you can't go back and then switch out and put all your trust in the arm of flesh. You can't ask an earthly king for an earthly escort. So we really are on our own. Well, better said, we really are. We have to put our trust in God the way we said we did. I love the admission there in these verses by Ezra. Uh, because to me, it dramatizes the difference between what I call testimony faith and hospital faith. Testimony faith is the chance to stand up at the pulpit on Fast Sunday and say, oh, I know this is all true. But hospital faith is the kind that calls down the power of heaven to heal someone, to administer to someone. That's the power of God that gives you the words to say. And, and provides the power and assurance and the guidance to get through life. That's a whole other level of faith. It's one thing to say you believe. It's another thing to actually live it. It's when Pre President Nelson talked about faith to move mountains. That's hospital faith. That's not testimony faith. And that's the kind that's required. It's, I love that Ezra is learning the difference. And I got to put my money where my mouth is. I need to put my feet, not in my mouth, but on the path that my mouth has laid out for me. And that's trust in God. If I said, there are more that be with us than those that be with them, then I better live that way. And he does. And God does indeed guide him. So verse 23, we fasted and besought our God for this. And he was entreated of us. And as they traveled to Jerusalem, verse 31 the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. It worked. <laughs> the Lord honored their faith, imperfect as it was. And as they fasted and humbled themselves and sought the strength to back up what they had testified of, the Lord came through for them. He always does. I love that he will confirm imperfect faith in order to strengthen it. He does the same for us. And with that, we only have two chapters left in Ezra, 9 and 10, before we shift to the book of Nehemiah in the second half of this week's lesson. But I love 9 and 10. It's such a fitting finale to this work because I don't know of a better place in Scripture to illustrate what godly sorrow looks like. Remember, this is coming from Ezra, who knows the law inside and out. And he's about to go to Jerusalem and see how people have been living and compare that to what the law demands. Remember, this is the one that is bringing men to judge with him, and they either know the law, or he's going to make sure they know it. He's the type that lives it and, and teaches it, so that others can live it and teach it as well. 
But what he's going to find in Jerusalem are people that have not been living the law as well as they should. In some major ways. The issue is going to be marriage outside the covenant. And that's huge because it affects relationships and bringing children into the world. And, and we saw that problem ever since Deuteronomy when the Lord said, don't ever do that. Uh, when the Lord says, do not intermarry with the people of the land because you won't bring them up. Sometimes you might. But what typically happens is they bring you down. And I cannot afford to lose the walls of my people that are making them a peculiar people. They're going to lower those walls and, and end up leaving my people to become more like the people that they marry into. And that's the problem we saw all throughout the Old Testament so far. So this is a serious sin. But what I love about Ezra 9 and 10 is how seriously the people take that sin. And the godly sorrow they feel once they realize what they've done is wrong. We saw a hint of that last week with King Josiah. When they dust off the law and he realizes, here's the standard and this is what I, where I've been living. We've been sinning in ignorance, uh, granted, but it's sin nonetheless. And we've got to change now that we're no longer ignorant. Well, Ezra was anything but ignorant of God's law, right? It defines him. And as he shares this with the people in chapter 9 and 10, I love the description of what, how they feel and what they do. Because to me, it is the ultimate illustration of godly sorrow. Years ago, I was in a bishopric, and we had a lot of disciplinary councils we had to sit in on. As members of our ward were, were changing and repenting, we had an amazing bishop who cried repentance and, and, and taught faith and helped people change. And, but that also required a lot of dis disciplinary councils for people who had made significant mistakes and their membership in the church was on the line. I remember occasionally in those disciplinary councils, people would come in to talk about what they had done wrong, and I felt worse about the sin than they did. And I'm not the one that committed it. But realizing what they had done and the severity of consequences when it comes to sins of immorality, for example, and being devastated for them, but not feeling devastation on their part. It was more a matter of, oh yeah, okay, so we committed fornication before we got married, but now we're married, so it's all legal, and so we're good, right? I mean, if it says that in the scriptures you're supposed to confess and forsake your sins, well, by getting married, we forsook that sin, uh, and we told the bishop about it. Uh, I mean, yeah, we lied to get into the temple, but um, it, sorry, uh, we didn't want that embarrassment, and we figured we could confess afterwards and, and work it out, uh, kind of behind closed doors. And so that's what we're here doing, and... Are we good? I checked off both boxes, right? And when it felt so automatic on their part, or just, you know, punching these numbers and the computer spits out forgiveness, that not that how the atonement works? No, it's relational. It's you connecting with Christ and you coming and you coming to him with a broken heart and a contrite spirit to lay upon the altar. It's heart to heart and spirit to spirit here, and your heart and spirit aren't broken. There is no godly sorrow. And the way Paul describes godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians, that's what clears you in this because it fills you with, with zeal and with revenge and with, with a focus on living better in the future. There is power in godly sorrow. And I sensed among these, some of these people that they didn't know what that felt like, perhaps because they didn't know what it looked like. 
And so I shared with them Ezra chapter 9 and 10. And these were the place, this was the place I would always take people that didn't quite know what sorrow for sin looked like. So let's study it together. In verse 1, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. There's, that's what happens when you don't have city walls to distinguish you. That's what happens when you break down the sanctuary of standards and begin to roam outside the confines of covenant. And that's happened among the people, among the priests, among the Levites. What are we going to do? This is no kingdom of priests. And this is no holy nation. This is not a peculiar people. You were supposed to be different, but you're not. In verse 2, they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. Oh, princes and rulers, perhaps they felt like they were above that little law. Oh, I can afford to... I mean, let's talk about chief and uh, prince and ruler. How about King Solomon himself? 700 wives and 300 concubines, political, diplomatic relations with the daughters of, of foreign powers. Oh, he definitely thought he was above the law on this. But what are we going to do about that now? Well, here's Ezra's reaction. Verse 3. When I heard this thing, I rent my garment just tore his clothes apart, showing on the outside what his heart was doing on the inside. Broken heart, you can't see that, but let me tear my clothes to let you know that my heart is being torn apart by the realization of what has happened here. You've married outside the covenant. You've left the covenant of God to make earthly covenants with, with lesser leaders to understand what's happening. Your children can't be born in the covenant this way. And the Abrahamic covenant is all about seed. Sands of the sea and stars of heaven to be able to extend the blessings of the fullness of the gospel to others and draw them into the covenant. No, you've been drawn out of it. And I'm devastated. I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished, which means astonished. I can't believe what's been happening here among people who ought to know better, people in leadership positions who should be setting the good example, priests and Levites who of all people ought to be holy and clean, separated and set apart. They're not either. This is more than just going through the motions of mourning. This is plucking off the hair of your head and your beard. This is absolute devastation. In verse 4, Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Are you as shocked by this as I am? Thankfully, he was not alone in his godly sorrow. This was collective repentance, which would be required to make actual social change. And that's what was required of them. Do you tremble at the words of God? Do you take his law seriously enough that you are devastated when someone, else's, when someone else sins? In verse 5, At the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees. There's the heaviness bringing him down to the ground. 
and I spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. You want to see true humility? You want to see sincere repentance? Well, here it is. And here is Ezra's prayer. As there he is, face on the ground, spreading out his hands to the Lord, and saying in verse 6, O my God, I am ashamed, and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. It sounds like Alma wishing that he could call the mountains to come and fall upon him, to hide him from the all-seeing eye of God. I'm ashamed. And it wasn't shame culture that was causing it. It was guilt culture. There's a huge difference there. And too often people accuse the church of being a shame culture. Well, sometimes the culture can be that, but not the doctrine. We are meant to be a guilt culture, which is inward driven. Shame culture is outward driven. Shame culture is, oh, make them a public spectacle. Put them in the stocks or in the pillory or at the post so people can throw rotten vegetables at them and mock and laugh. No, the church doesn't even publicize what happens behind the closed doors of a disciplinary council, even if doing so would help defend the good name of the church from excommunicated people who are then throwing rotten vegetables back in the church's direction. No, the church doctrinally and organizationally is not a shame culture. But because of our standards, because of the law of God and His commandments and our covenants, then yes, we should be a guilt culture, which, like I said, rises up from within as we feel godly sorrow, as we feel the twinge of conscience and the Spirit lets us know you've done something wrong. Guilt in that circumstance is a good thing. It's the spiritual equivalent of pain. And pain is good because it alerts us that something is happening to the body that shouldn't be happening. Guilt and a pricked conscience is a good thing to let us know you're doing something to your soul that shouldn't be happening. And what I love about this admission on the part of Ezra is he feels that guilt, even though he's not the one that's guilty. A collective covenant we're in this together. We are gathering as one man. And if Zion is one heart and one mind, then I should feel as bad for your sins as you do. As I question, could I have done anything to lead you away from them? Can I do anything now to help? Crying repentance is also helping people live a life of recovery, helping them rebuild their lives. And Ezra wants to do all of that. The way he phrased it, our iniquities are increased over our head. Our trespass is grown up into the heavens. Talk about the opposite of minimizing our sin. There's no justification. There's no rationalization. They've even done this in surveys. If they ever ask a question about negative behaviors, they automatically assume that people are going to underestimate how guilty they are or how many times they engage in that negative practice. Because even if it's an anonymous survey, nobody really wants to admit to anybody. In fact, most people don't even want to admit to themselves just how bad things have gotten. And so people tend to under-report negative behaviors. In Ezra's case, he's not under-reporting. He's allowing those iniquities to increase over his head to their full stature 
all the way up to heaven. It's what's keeping me from God. It's what's closing the heavens. And so it doesn't do me any good to minimize them when the reality is different. This is full confession, full contrition. In verse 7, he goes on in his prayer, Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to spoil, to confusion of face, which means humiliation. It means shame. That's why he's blushing, as it is this day. There's a couple ways to look at that verse. Since the days of our fathers, we've been in a great trespass. On the one hand, you could see this as this is long-term sin. This is something we've always seemed to struggle with. That's important as we muster our own godly sorrow. Are we seeing trends develop? Or was this just a momentary lapse of, of character or judgment on our part? Because if it's trends and they're in the downward direction, then we really need to see what road we're on and where we're headed. Then again... I wonder if this is an admission of this is multi-generational sin. This is the wickedness of our fathers becoming wicked traditions among their children. And do people know better? I don't think he's trying to mitigate things or, or trying to explain them away or come up with excuses. Like we saw in the previous verse, he's willing to extend it all the way up to heaven. But I do wonder if this is a realization of what we're up against. We're fighting culture itself. We're fighting social norms that we're not supposed to become normal. Please help us with this. And God will. That's what he says in verse 8. I love this verse. Now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. I'm bringing this second remnant home. Zerubbabel brought the first remnant home before me. And then this phrase, to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. This is such a powerful description of what Ezra is praying for and what the Lord is offering in return. All he asks is for a little space for grace to come. He's asking for a little reviving in this bondage. He's asking, he's grateful that there's at least a remnant coming home. He's not asking for blanket amnesty. He's not asking for all the space in the world and just keep heaping grace upon us so that we can repent at any time it's convenient. He's not asking for everyone to come marching back right then because scattered Israel isn't ready to, but this remnant is just a little reviving, not a complete resurrection yet. The phrase that I always haunts me is from Romans when Paul speaks of despising the goodness of God. Some translate that as to presume upon his grace. It's just, oh, put it on the Savior's tab. He's got this covered. He's merciful. Now, I love how, how careful Ezra is being about measuring the, the mercy seat. He doesn't want it to hang out so far over the edges of the Ark of the Covenant that it's all, that so much of it is going to waste. No, it's made to measure, as we learned back in Exodus and Leviticus. It covers it just right. And so ask for no more grace than what you need to be forgiven. 
No less either. But do not begin to presume upon the Lord's grace. Don't waste any of it. And then that other phrase, a nail in his holy place, that should perk up our ears if we're used to holy places. A nail, that word, by the way, is the same word used for the tent spike that Jael used to defeat Sisera in her tent. It's the same word that's used when we speak of strengthening the stakes of the tent of Zion so we can lengthen her cords and allow more people to come in and be covered by the shelter that the gospel of Christ gives. This is the same word used as the pin in the loom that Delilah used to weave Samson's hair in and try to defeat him with the help of the Philistines. This word comes up in fascinating places in the Old Testament. This spike, this stake, this pin, this nail. I love that the King James translators chose nail for it because for a Christian reader, it can't help but think, make us think of the crucifixion of Christ. And to have a nail in his holy place. More literally, this would be to have a stake in the, in the sanctuary. And I like that language too. Like when you have a stake in something, it's like it, it means something to me. I got skin in the game and this isn't a game. I have a stake in it. Put it in the ground. Mark the territory. This, it, hold the earth and hold my ground and I'm not going to be pushed away from it. I love that. Here, here's a nail in his holy place. I'm not going to allow anybody to drive us away from the temple. All of the opposition that people faced in the previous, the, the previous letters, all those, the use of history against versus the his, use of history for, uh, using political pressures against us and, and counsel and so on, trying to hinder the work of God. Wolves and sheep's clothing, all of that. No, none of that can work because we are going to put a stake in that ground and mark out sacred space, holy territory, and hold the line and not let it move. Now again, take what you know from sacred space and think about nails in holy places. And no wonder we can't be moved because Christ was willing to offer himself on a cross and not be moved from it. Not to allow the weight of the sins of humanity to pull him off that cross, but rather to be nailed to it himself. That is where he hung his head. It's where we hang our hopes. And that nail will hold. Christ made the ultimate stake in things. And we can count on him wholeheartedly. No wonder Ezra trusts him. No, un no wonder Ezra, in spite of knowing the consequences of broken law, also knows the broken heart of the lawgiver and his willingness to come to our aid as we try to rebuild ourselves with his help. Notice what he says in the next part of his prayer, verse 9, For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. Even though we brought these problems upon ourselves, God didn't abandon us. He hasn't forsaken us. Instead, he hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia, even they know about it, to give us a reviving. It's the second time he's used that word, a little reviving in our bondage. God has given us a lot. He's allowed us to look positive 
in the, in the eyes of these Persian kings. These, they've given us blank checks to go back and rebuild the house of God. Can we not take advantage of that granting of grace, this reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair the desolations thereof, to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem? You see what he's praying in gratitude for? To revive and repair. A far cry from our lifelessness and our brokenness. God is willing to give us that. A wall. Usually the wall is reserved for the book of Nehemiah. We'll get there in a moment. But here, Ezra is seeing it even though it hasn't been reconstructed yet. God is our wall. He is our protection. He is our sanctuary. He's our identity as we define ourselves by him. That's why Isaiah says in the same verse about him, us being engraven upon the, wall, the, the palms of his hands. How's that for a nail in a holy place? In the same verse, he says, thy walls are continually before me. I love the second half of that verse. We usually only quote the first half. Yes, we are engraven in his palms. But our walls are continually before him. He sees the limits, the edges of our existence. He sees the, the, our boundaries and our, our limits. And, and he tries to work within them to help us become whole. He fills in our, our emptiness. He heals our brokenness. He becomes our walls because our walls are always before him. In verse 10 and 11, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants, the prophets. What an admission. What shall we say? I have no words to justify myself, to explain these things away. I only come to you in humility, in godly sorrow, in hopes that that will be acceptable to thee. I mean, what good would excuses or rationalization do anyway when God can see through it all? In verse 13, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hast given us such deliverance as this. That's one of my favorite phrases in this chapter. Thou hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Oh, in a much less serious way, I always quote that to my sister-in-law whenever she brings goodies and, and cookies or sweets over. She's an amazing cook herself and, and it's so generous. And every time she comes over and brings, you know, drops off a banana bread or some muffins or, or what leftovers from dinner, I'll always tell her, oh, you have punished me less than my iniquities deserve. I do not deserve this goodness, but I sure am grateful for it. And she keeps it coming. Oh, in a more serious vein, we can always say the same to God. Even when our punishment feels heavy, it's nothing compared to the weight of sin that the Savior bore in Gethsemane. And if we can understand that, then our humility will drive us to admit that same thing. Speaking of disciplinary councils, talk about the opposite extreme was one more recently where a, a man was coming to confess and and I asked him about godly sorrow and asked him how he felt about what he'd done and asked him about how much justice needs to be meted out by the Lord for, for him to recognize the severity of his sin. Because again, if we give someone a placebo, it doesn't help. 
if we give them a band-aid when a body cast is needed, then that is not helping. That's hurting the person. And so I was asking for his self-awareness and self-diagnosis, and his answer was so beautiful. It was Ezra-like. I didn't have to quote Ezra to him. He didn't need it because he already had godly sorrow and basically said what Ezra said here. He said to us as a bishopric, you can do anything you need to do. If it's disfellowshipment, fine. If it's excommunication, fine. If I have to start everything over and rebuild a life and try to be rebaptized eventually, then that's not too much to ask. I will do whatever it takes to become clean. And you sense in that admission what Ezra is saying here, no matter what you have me go through, I will be punished less than what my iniquities deserve. If sin costs the perfect life of Christ, then how can we assume that getting off easy is sufficient for us to become clean from our sins? Now, I'm not saying that you need to heap more upon yourself. That's one of the great things about a judge in Israel. They know just how big the band-aid needs to be through the power of discernment. That's the power of going to Christ and asking, going to the Father and asking in the name of Christ if you can be cleansed and healed. You can be, but there's just an admission on our part. God, you've already been merciful, far more merciful than I deserve. But thank you for that. It's simply a recognition on our part that we have no claim on mercy. If we did, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be justice. <laughs> justice is something that you have claim for. You deserve it. That would, that's what justice demands. Mercy is when you admit, I don't deserve you at all. And yet the Lord offers it anyway. In verse 14, should we again break thy commandment and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldst thou not be angry with us till thou hadst consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? You see the concern on Ezra's part there? I'm just afraid of us. You've been so merciful already. My iniquity has increased to the heavens, but your mercy has been above and beyond even that. You've punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and I just don't want to ever take that goodness for granted. I don't want ever to presume upon your grace, because if I again break those commandments, if we fall back into things, then who knows, that might be it for us. No remnant, no escaping. I just don't want to chance one more fall into sin. There's a fine line here, by the way, because we know the verse from Mosiah that as often as my people repent, I will forgive them. There's a blank check. There's no limit. The 7 times 70 was meant for us to lose track on our forgiveness. The Lord doesn't have to keep track at all. He just keeps forgiving as often as we repent. But the moment we just assume that's always the case. See, there's other verses in the scriptures that speak of, and if repentance is to be found, isn't that what Joseph prayed in the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple? Wait, if? Isn't it always to be found? That's what Mosiah says. Well, don't act like that, because then you'll just fall back into sin, knowing that, hey, just... Put it back on Christ's tab. He'll cover it like he always does. No, it needs to be this godly sorrow. I don't want to risk it. In fact, that's the word Alma uses when he talks to Corianton. 
as he's taught Corianton justice, but also taught Corianton mercy, and trying to keep him within that Goldilocks zone of grace where you know it's there, but you don't take it for granted, he says this in Alma 41.9, And now behold, my son, do not risk one more offense against your God upon those points of doctrine, which ye have hitherto risked to commit sin. He says it twice. Ezra, on the other hand, wants there to be no risk in it. Don't give yourself any chance to, re, to re-enter this kind of sinfulness. In verse 15, this chapter ends, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. We're not, but you are. For we remain yet escaped. Other translations, we are an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, in our guilt, in our shame, in our godly sorrow, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. No wonder we're on our knees. No wonder we're on our face in the dirt with hands reached out to heaven. A place of total vulnerability, a position of smallness because we are making no demands. We're in no position to do so. We cannot stand, but we can bow. We can kneel. We can worship. We can plead. We can repent. And we can rebuild if you'll give us another chance to do so. And God does. The prayer of Ezra 9 is answered. And in chapter 10, This display of godly sorrow sorrow continues. Verse 1, when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. His godly sorrow is spreading to them. Remember Nephi up on that garden tower? as he's pouring out his heart to God over the wickedness of the people around him. And unbeknownst to him, the people begin to assemble to hear what is he so sorrowful about? About you. Will you be sorrowful sorrowful yourself? Some of those Nephites were, others were not. In Ezra's case, the people are coming. They are weeping right alongside him. Social sin, collective repentance required. In verse 2, this is what they say alongside him. We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Marriage outside the covenant, that was the key sin here. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Do you see the change of sentiment by the end of verse 2? It's amazing to me. End of verse 1, they were weeping very sore. End of verse 2, filled with hope concerning this thing. How's that possible? Did you abandon your godly sorrow? Now it's back to eat, drink, and be merry? No, not at all. It was their godly sorrow that got them to this point of hopefulness. It was their godly sorrow that brought them to their knees. But as they were looking down on the ground, they recognized the rock that was beneath them. And that the lawgiver himself also gave himself to pay the penalty for broken law. That's, that's where creation, fall, atonement all come together as one. In Christ, he wants to reconstruct us. And once we realize we're in need of reconstruction, then the hope comes and fills our, our broken hearts. 
it, it softens that contrite spirit and, and reaffirms to us all that there is hope ahead. In fact, that same bishop that I had all those disciplinary counsels with uh, early on in our marriage, that taught me so much about faith and about repentance, he taught me something that this verse applies to as well. He shared a story that when he was a young college student himself, when he was an elders quorum president, and a member of his quorum had committed a sin grievous enough that he was being excommunicated. And the stake president called the, this elders quorum president and let him know, a member of your quorum that you've been close to has, this is what's happened, and I just want you to keep an eye out for him and offer him whatever help that you can. And he ran over to the apartment of this friend and asked him how he was doing. And this young elder scorn president said, I was shocked at the hope in the eyes of this friend who'd just been excommunicated from the church. Because, and he was, like I said, shocked to see it because like, what, I, I thought you'd be devastated. He says, oh, I was devastated by my sin, but I'm so filled with hope at the chance to repent. And I didn't think I'd feel this way when it came to excommunication. I'm not trying to leave the church. I'm trying to stay in it. But this, I get to start over. And I know where to go from here. There's nowhere to go but up. And to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of my sins in hopes of someday being rebaptized and regaining the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'd, you want to know about enduring to the end? I plan to do so if I can get back to that point. And excommunication was a, a moment of hope for him. I get the same sense here in the book of Ezra. Then in verse 3, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Now the people's reaction to their sin once they realize what they've done is beautiful in terms of their their seriousness about making wrong things right. We're going to fix this. We're going to put away what we've done wrong and, and start over. And that's the attitude we each must take when it comes to full repentance. What complicates matters here is the fact that it involves marriage and family. Their sin was marrying outside the covenant. Back in verse uh, 2, when it talks about strange wives, it doesn't mean strange weird. It means foreign outside the family of faith. Now, that doesn't mean that those wives can't join the covenant and come in and then all is well, okay? But those who refuse to, what do I do in this situation? In verse 3, their solution was divorce. And we're going to put away all these wives and all those that are born of them. We're going to sever these relationships. And that's what makes it so complicated when we think about how does that verse apply to us? If you can think about the non-relational sins and realize that any sin affects your relationship with Christ and therefore those sins have to go, then yes, by all means, be that drastic. Make that level of change in your life and it's got to go. And I'm going to completely sever it and put it away and never go back to it. That's wonderful. I, God would applaud that. But in this instance, if you're in an exact parallel to this, for example, and I've married outside the covenant, or my spouse has left the church, and there's no covenant between us anymore, what, or at least no covenant between them and God anymore, then what do I do? 
does this verse justify divorce? The Old Testament, by and large, is against divorce. We'll see that in Malachi, said clearly. We saw some things about that back in, in the law in Deuteronomy. And even Jesus, when he brings up divorce in the New Testament, he says, yes, Moses allowed it, but only because of the hardness of your hearts. I'm, I'm not for it, and neither was Moses. Allowance is not encouragement. So by and large, we're going to say this is not what you ought to do here. Is this simply an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of mentality in the days of the Mosaic law? And for them, it's like, no, we're, it, it's over. Some scholars have even said they wouldn't just do that, could they? That would seem to go against a lot of what else is taught in the law of Moses on the merciful side. And so perhaps if, they, if they're breaking off these relationships, then surely they are making arrangements to provide for that former spouse and children. Uh, child support, alimony, whatever you want to call it. There's, they can't just abandon. That's not right. Okay, I, I can go with that. Uh, is it a matter of lower law replaced by a higher law with the coming of Christ? Because you can take 1 Corinthians 7.14, for example, as Paul's advice to those who've married outside the covenant, where he, when he says that the unbelieving spouse can be sanctified by the believing spouse, hmm, that's, that's hopeful. That is higher law. And so if your spouse doesn't share your religious beliefs, but allows you to hold on to them, then there's no encouragement for divorce that we get from Scripture on those instances. So again, be careful how you use Ezra 10 verse 3. Uh, I would prefer to stay in the more general view of if you're in the wrong, then do whatever it takes to be in the right. Make the kinds of changes necessary. But if you're in that exact situation, again, be careful how you apply that verse. Okay? Use the New Testament along with it. But I do love the, the idea of taking God seriously enough that even the thought of sin makes you tremble at the commandments of the Lord and makes you want to make whatever dramatic or drastic lifestyle changes are necessary to avoid the kinds of sins that you've fallen into in the past. That's, those are examples worth following. Well, the people agree to this particular covenant, and Ezra solemnizes it. In verse 6, Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Yohanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. This is this same display of godly sorrow continuing on. Here he is fasting as a sign of mourning. He's already pulled out the hair of his head and his beard. He's already rent his clothing and his mantle. He's already been lying down in the dirt, pleading to God for mercy. And here he's fasting as yet one more sign of sorrow and mourning. In some ways, fasting is also a beautiful visual aid of what sin is all about in terms of it making you so sick as to lose your appetite. Can we lose our appetite for sin? Can we be so sickened by it we never want to go back to it? Also, fasting a way for the spirit to tell the body who's in charge. And that would help us avoid sin in the future, not to risk it again. Well, Ezra then gathers the people to Jerusalem. And in verse 9, all the people sat in the streets of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. Oh, they weren't shivering because of the cold. 
they were trembling because of their recognition of wrongdoing. And then the rain, oh, that's just one more layer of symbolism, that as they wept, so did God. And the God who weeps, shedding his tears upon the mountains for the mistakes people have made, but also sorrowing alongside them with their godly sorrow, mourning with those who mourn, ready to comfort those that stand now in need of comfort. Uh, if you think about Noah and the flood and the washing away of sin by that rain, well, the rain is falling here too. And where are they gathered? Right by, this, by the house of God. Perfect location. A house that has recently been rebuilt and rededicated. Well, that's what these people are trying to do too. In verse 10, Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed something they all know. You have taken strange wives, foreigners, to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Make the required changes. Separate yourself. In other words, set yourselves apart. This is a good preview of the building of the walls in Nehemiah, and they need to be doing that. By confessing their sins, by the way, as he said, make confession. I've told you what you've done is wrong. Will you admit the same? Because if you confess your sin and, and not justify it or rationalize things, not to say that it's the rule that's wrong and needs to change, no, confession is a reaffirmation of the, of the rule, even though you broke it. It's letting people know that, yes, I broke the rule, but I didn't rebel against it. I, I realize it needs to be in place, and I want to be one who follows it. Confession is powerful because it is a reaffirmation. Therefore, the community can rest assured, okay, you're not trying to break our... You're not trying to change our rules. You simply, out of weakness, broke one. That we can handle as you repent. Next, verse 12. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. But the people are many, and it is a time of much rain, and we are not able to stand without. Neither is this a work of one day or two. For we are many that have transgressed in this thing. I love both of those verses. As thou hast said, so must we do. That's real repentance. That is laying our sins upon the altar and our will right alongside it to say to the Lord, whatever I need to do to change, I'll do it. And then the other part, but this one will take time untangling this web of relationship is going to be difficult. Will some of these wives and children choose to join us in the covenant and all is well? Will others refuse? Then how do I make arrangements for them? And how do I do this right? It's, it's rainy season, uh, among other things. Here we are standing outside. And are we just going to send our wives and children out into the cold with no shelter or protection? Father, we want to do what's right, but please give us the time to make the necessary changes. I don't see this as excuses or justification or rationalization or procrastinating the day of their repentance. I don't see any of that here. 
Instead, I see a realism that recognizes the complicated consequences of sin and is going to need the time to be able to untangle things, to extricate themselves from this. And God is good in those areas as well. He knows that real repentance is not the work of one day or two. Often it's not even the work of one repentance or two. As so often we slip back in, even though we did our best to avoid risking one more offense. I wasn't presuming upon his grace, but I'm sorry for my weakness. And the Lord understands that. And no wonder he fills the guilt gap with grace to give you time to change. He did for the woman taken in adultery. I'm not condoning your sin, but I'm not condemning you today. I'll give you the time you need to change since your immorality will take more than a day or two to resolve. If you are fighting against sins of addiction, if you are trying to get into recovery or stay in recovery, it can be a long process, though the change can happen in an instant. Things can be done suddenly, as we saw in a previous lesson. And this, these were sudden changes, but, but gradual oh, untangling of the complicated problems that they'd brought upon themselves. I'm grateful for God's mercy. I'm grateful for his realism uh, and his understanding in all of this. But they did begin this difficult process of dissolving these marriages, uh, of beginning again and looking to live within the covenant. In verse 17, they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. Oh, I can't think of a better time for a new beginning. Whenever you start to change, it's New Year. It's the first day of the first month of the rest of your life, and it can be a life with a rebuilt temple with a changed heart, with a clean slate, and an understanding of who it is that gave you the opportunity to make all those changes. The rest of this chapter then, as the book of Ezra ends, lists those who married outside the covenant and, and who ended those marriages. And then the narrative shifts back to Persia and on to the book of Nehemiah. As we turn our attention to Nehemiah, I pray that the lessons of Ezra will linger in our hearts, knowing that the temple came first, the center core, what I'm going to try to get my life to revolve around as I rebuild my life. With Ezra, we'll now rebuild the walls because that will give us a sense of self moving forward. Now, to make sense of this second half, the book of, of Nehemiah, we will shift from Israel and Ezra back to Persia with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a fascinating character. We meet him in the very first verse. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan at the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. 
Now here we see that Nehemiah is in a very different circumstance than Ezra. In the book of Ezra, we didn't meet him until halfway through. There had already been one round of remnant returning with Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar. And then the second group comes with Ezra as he reestablishes the law. The temple's now been completed. All is well, it seems, in Jerusalem. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't even know, because I'm here, Nehemiah, in, in Shushan, in the palace. I've got a pretty good gig going on here among the Persians. We'll find out in a moment that he is the cupbearer of the king. And that puts him in a position of influence, of being in the know. Uh, his life's pretty good, but what he doesn't know is, are the lives of the Israelites good as well? So I love the fact that he thinks not just of himself, and hey, I'm all good, so don't worry about it. No, when these messengers come, he asks them, how are the Jews back in Jerusalem? How did they fare? Here's a man who is concerned about his people more than himself. In verse 3, you see more of that. They said to him, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. In other words, the people are suffering physically. There's the affliction. They're suffering psychologically. There's the reproach. There's no wall to protect them. Talk about exposed to the world and its, its dangers. The, the loss of a sense of self, as we talked about, these walls before them. There's no gates, so that's the place of judgment. There's no sense of what should come in and what should go out. I mean, there's no walls to make a difference there anyway. This is no way to live. Yes, you can have a temple, but you've got to have the walls to separate the people of God from outside influence. So how's Nehemiah to react once he receives that news? Verse 4, It came to pass when I heard these things that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now this isn't mourning over sin like Ezra was. This is mourning over circumstance. The situation they find themselves in, how can I not weep? When I know that my own people are suffering, he was, that's beautiful empathy, by the way. He's feeling for them, even though he isn't there feeling with them. Like I said, my life's good here in the palace, but theirs isn't. And, and therefore, how can I not be moved with compassion toward them? As a result of that compassion, he fasted and prayed, it says. And here is his prayer. Verse 5. I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Notice what Nehemiah knows about God. He is great. He is terrible. In other words, awe-inspiring. We fear him slash revere him. He keeps covenant. He keeps his word. But he also keeps mercy since we don't always keep covenant and we don't always keep our word. A beautiful combination there, that he can always be trusted, including trusted to come through for us when we can't be trusted ourselves. There is his mercy, and it is given to those who love him and observe his commandments. Great combination there. If you love me, keep my commandments. We see the same combination in Nehemiah's prayer. In verse 6, he keeps praying, Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, 
and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. So it's not only sorrow over circumstance. It is sorrow over sin. He realizes the people haven't been perfect, and he includes himself among their number. I love that. We have sinned. I don't seem to be suffering as a result. i got a cush life here in the palace. But the people are suffering, and so it might as well be me. Both I and my father's house have sinned. By the way, you'll see similar humility on Jacob's part in the Book of Mormon. Jacob was as good as they come. You don't see sin on his part, but he admits it. My favorite place to see it is in 2 Nephi 9.14 when he says about the wicked that we will have a perfect knowledge of all of our guilt and our uncleanness and our nakedness. While the righteous, he goes on, will have a perfect knowledge of their righteousness and their cleanliness and they will be clothed with the robes of righteousness. I remember years ago when I read that and focused on the pronouns and thought, Jacob, why are you including yourself on the wrong side? You don't, you're not among the wicked. But his humility put him there. I don't know if there's a verse with more humble pronouns than there with Jacob. But you see a similar statement here from Nehemiah. I'm on the wrong side, along with my family. In verse 7, we, that same inclusive pronoun, we have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. This is on us. It's our fault. So verse 8, Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Now, why would he want him to remember that? that that's the bad news. And it's already happened. Nor the northern tribes were scattered by Assyria. The southern kingdom was brought, dragged captive into Babylon. Don't remember that. Well, actually, yes, do. Remember that half because that means you will remember the other half, which is the good news. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather thee from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Oh, that place is the temple recently rebuilt in the book of Ezra. The place of gathering. And that's where God will gather us to. Now, do you understand why Nehemiah would want God to remember both halves of the covenant? Not just the bad news, but the good news too? That's the godly sorrow and the hope that comes once we've hit rock bottom. Yes, we will be scattered for our sins. We already have been. But that the same God who warned us about that has reassured us about this. That there will be a gathering someday. And that if we will repent and come unto Him, then He will bring us back home. To Jerusalem. To the temple. To the promised land. We can bank on that. Even if we've been cast out to the uttermost part of heaven. There is no place outside the redeeming reach of Jesus Christ. And no matter how far you've been scattered because of your sins, the same God who warned you away from those is reassuring you that rebuilding lies ahead. You maybe didn't take his warning in the first half, 
Please take his promise in the second. Nehemiah does. He then says in verse 10, Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Such beautiful, possessive pronouns. He got the I and the we right earlier. He definitely gets the thee and the thou right here. God, we know thou art personally involved in all of this. Because we're thy servants. We're thy people. Thou hast redeemed us. And we're grateful for thy personal involvement in all of this. No wonder he can pray in verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Speaking of the king. For I was the king's cupbearer. That's the first time Nehemiah has said anything about himself. And it didn't come until the very end of this chapter. Like I said at the very beginning, he's a guy who doesn't think about himself in his circumstance. He's thinking about others all the time. And, but here he, he realizes something about himself. Wait, I'm in a position of influence. I am the king's cupbearer, and if, oh, if I can somehow influence him to bless my people, then I can be an instrument in the hands of God. I'm just going to need God's hands upon me to help me through this. I'm not praying for, for the king of Persia to solve all of our problems. I'm simply praying that God will soften his heart to give me permission to help solve some of those problems more directly. In a way, this is like Nephi praying to God, I don't need you to build the ship. I don't even need you to build the, the tools for me to build the ship. But I could use a little help discovering the ore. If you'll show me where ore is found, I'll do all the work from there. Nehemiah seems to have the similar combination of faith and works. I'll do the work, but I have the faith first for you to soften the heart of the person I need to work through in this. And so he does. Chapter 2 begins... It came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer after all. I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence, and that's despite being a servant in a foreign land. Now that might mean he was sad, but only in the king's absence. Either way, this is the first time the king's ever seen a bad, uh, a bad face on Nehemiah. And he says to him, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Well, then I was very sore afraid. Now, there's not many places you can look for mental illness in the Old Testament. But this might be one place where we can gain an insight into it. Because what's interesting here is the way the king responds to the sorrow of Nehemiah. He's never seen this before. But there's some change of countenance. He's got a frown instead of a smile. And can you blame him? Like I said, I'm a, a servant in foreign territory. But no, you've always had a good attitude. Your life's pretty good. We treat you well. My cupbearer, that's not too difficult for you. But his response is fascinating. What, why are you sad when you're not sick? <laughs> this is just sorrow of heart. So get over it. Now, do you see why I would mention this in a... In a few moments, discussion of mental health. 
if someone is sorrowful, if someone is depressed, to use that word, yes, we usually look for cause behind that effect. We look for environmental factors. Are you sick? It's like a baby when they're crying. Oh, they must be hungry, so let's feed them. They must have a dirty diaper, so let's change them. They must be overtired. Let's help them fall asleep. And if nothing works, it's like, what is wrong here? I've exhausted all the options. Well, what if it's not something outside and not even something inside as far as physical pain is concerned or, or physical sickness? What if it's something unseen and sometimes unidentified? I just, I want to caution anyone who's never struggled with mental illness themselves. Be very careful before you look at someone and say, what are you sad for? You're not sick. You're not suffering. In other words, you have no reason to feel this way. That's the way the king says it. This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Is that what we say with people that are suffering from clinical depression? Eh, it's, just, it's, nothing, it's just in your head, so get over it. This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And if we treat mental illness as if it were nothing, well, this is just, what, anxiety? What's that? So you're nervous about something. We all get nervous. Just get over it. Uh, there's a difference between your anxiety, lowercase a, and my anxiety, capital A. That just doesn't go away, and there's no cause for it. And I can't, I can't just get over it. There's a difference between your lowercase d depression, which, yeah, situational sorrow, and my capital D depression that never goes away. And if you treat it as if it were nothing, and you just wave it away like it's just a figment of your imagination, then no wonder it says that Nehemiah was very sore afraid. And so will be those people that you don't understand. They will be afraid of your judgment. They'll be afraid of your lack of understanding. They'll be afraid of ever opening up to you about what's happening in their mind and heart. They'll be afraid that there's no one out there to help them if things get to a breaking point where there seems to be no way out of this so-called nothingness, simple sorrow of heart. No, I may not be sick, visibly or physically. But I'm sick mentally, and I don't know how to fix myself. It's so hard when the part that is broken is the part you're supposed to use to fix things. That's really frustrating. And as I've spoken with loved ones that are wrestling with this, as I've tried to communicate with loved ones through the mind, when it's the mind that is making things so difficult, no wonder solutions seem to be so hard to come by. But in the absence of simple solutions, we can at least empathize. We can at least cut people some slack and give them some space to sorrow and realize that it's not nothing else but sorrow of heart. There's something deeper going on. We can treat them in a way that they don't have to fear us. And we can be safe conversation partners. We can be safe shoulders to cry on. And that can make a great difference. In verse 3, he says to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste? 
and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Interesting the way Nehemiah responds to the king here. Because he was afraid of the king's response. If I, what am I going to say? And I love how he handles it. He simply says, here's my circumstance. And then I'll let you judge. Why shouldn't my countenance be sad? This is what's going on back in Jerusalem. This is my connection to it. This is what... Here are my walls before you. And it's a lack of walls for my, for my city. How do you think I should react to this circumstance? And I think that's a powerful way of advocating with our, for ourselves without oh, guilting the other party, without making it their problem, but not fully making it our own either. Uh, to me, there's something here, if you're struggling with mental illness, worth wrestling with, of just, here's the situation, how would you react? And leaving at that. In verse 4 and 5, then the king responds, For what dost thou make request? He's, he's learning here. He doesn't try to solve Nehemiah's problem himself, but he asks Nehemiah, what would help you? I think that's really good advice to follow. I can't take away your mental illness. I can't solve every problem, but is, is there, do you see a solution at all? What do you think would be helpful? Because too often we come rushing in and we're like, well, this is the easy way to fix it. You don't know what I'm dealing with. And that doesn't work for me. Oh, I'm so sorry. What, you tell me what might work. And anything I can do along those lines to help, I'm here for. Now, this is exactly what Nehemiah needs to hear. But he's got a huge request to make, and he needs some divine help to make it. So, I prayed to the God of heaven. Notice he looked up to God before he looks over to the king. But with that extra inf infusion of divine help, I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. Again, I'm not asking you to build it yourself. I'm just asking you to give me permission to go do it. There is so much work to be done in my hometown, and I can't do it from here. I've received reports of what's going on there, and even if a temple is rebuilt, if there's no walls to keep the city in, uh, safe, if there's no walls to define the city and the people who live there, then I still have no people. I have a purpose, but not an identity. I've got a temple, but no wall. And... I just want to make a, a contribution. I want to make a difference. Will you allow me to? And verse 6, The king said unto me, The queen also sitting by him, Well, for how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. I actually really respect the interaction here between the king and his cupbearer. I mean, it started a little iffy when the king was dismissive as far as, as far as Nehemiah's sadness was concerned. But it's ending beautifully. When it's like, oh, okay, I can't... I, I think Nehemiah did a good job first of, here's my circumstance, I'll let you judge. And then it's starting to dawn on the king, like, oh, wow, he's got a lot on his mind. He's dealing with a lot. Okay, um, I'm not going to offer any solutions, but I can offer help for any solutions you might come up with. How can I be of service to you? And then Nehemiah seeks the Lord's guidance on this and the Lord's strength, and then he asks, but doesn't force it upon him. Uh, he's, if this is something you can do, if, if, I, if I've been worthy of any assistance, then 
this would make a great difference. And I'm not asking you to solve all my problems, but carve out some space where I can work through them. Oh, okay, I can do that. But notice it's not a blank check like we saw with Ezra as far as the finances and so on are concerned to build the temple. Instead, it's, okay, how long will you need? And then, and when will you return? And, and that's enough for Nehemiah because he sets a time limit for himself and says, okay, I think this is what I'll need. It's like budgeting. I don't need a blank check, uh, but this is how much I would need to accomplish the work. Oh, well, wonderful. Then let us meet those needs. Honestly, this is a great example of parenting. If there's a child that is pushing against the boundaries, because it's not just the king, the queen is right beside him. That's good. So make sure that you're united on this, mom and dad. And if a child is pushing the envelope, well, ask them how much more wiggle room they need. What are you asking for? What are your needs? And where do you, what do you think curfew should be? Or how much time do you think you'll need to accomplish this task that the family needs you to accomplish? How much extra space would make a difference for you? and work together to come up with a solution. I love the way this verse unfolds. And sure enough, Nehemiah is able to create a certain boundary. I mean, he is the, the wall builder after all. Here's how much space I need. Here's how much time. And he sets his own limit, which the king and queen can then honor. That sounds good. We've come to an agreement here. Work within those confines. They're a little broader than what I had pictured, but probably a little less than what you would have hoped uh, if you had a blank, you didn't get the blank check. So yeah, we can, we can both live with this. Well, just to make sure that others can live with it, Nehemiah then asks for letters from the king to certify all that's been said. I, I need proof. Maybe he's, I mean, this is the opposite of what we saw in, in Ezra, where letters are passing back and forth to the king, like, the, the Jews are up to no good here in this wicked, rebellious city. And it's like, oh, well, well check your sources a, a second time and you'll see what's going on. Well, here, Nehemiah, can I have your royal signature, proving that I have your permission for what it is that I'm trying to do? And in verse 8, the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Nehemiah is honoring God in this, even more than he's honoring the king. He didn't say, oh yeah, and the king just had a good heart in the right place. No, God softened that heart, and I praise God for it. Nehemiah eventually arrives in Jerusalem. He's got a royal escort, but he meets enemies when he first arrives. We met those back in Ezra as well, trying to, to get in the way of the work. In verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. It's sad that these two men, Sanballat, he's called a Horonite, but that is part of the Samaritans, and then Tobiah was an Ammonite. These are people that have connections to Israel. Ammonites, that's descendants of Lot. He should have been a little more loyal to Abraham's posterity. And like we saw with the Assyrian conquests, Samaritans are still half Israelite themselves, or at least some portion. But no, they're getting in the way of the work, and it grieved them to see that anyone was coming around to help. That's sick and twisted. When you're so low that not only are you not wanting to help others yourself, but you get frustrated or sad that anyone else is trying to help them. Remember Charity? 
rejoiceth not in iniquity? Well, these people have no charity. They can't rejoice that someone else is receiving help. In verse 12 and 13, I arose in the night. After all, Nehemiah is aware of the opposition that's out there, so I don't want them to see what I'm up to. I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. He's keeping the, the cards close to the vest on this one. But God has put something in his heart. I've come to help. And what's he doing this night? I went out by night and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Yes, I got the report from those messengers back at the beginning of chapter 1, but I've got to see for myself, because God has put this in my heart. He's not waiting for an engraven invitation, though he got one from the king. He wasn't waiting for a formal responsibility or calling. No, he just was moved by the Spirit, and he's acting on it. And he's getting up early or staying up late. He's losing sleep over this issue. He's doing it in a way to try to avoid opposition. And he's surveying just how much work will need to be done. Did I ask the king for enough time here? Well, he doesn't tell the people his plans yet. But he finally says to them in verse 17, Ye see the distress that we are in. Look around, my friends. Recognize our situation how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Oh, great passage there. Help people see the situation for what it is. Help them see that there is a better solution out there. Help them see that God is behind it and that they are willing to participate and, and people will roll up their sleeves and come running. So often we don't look for solutions because we haven't recognized the problem. But once we do, we're going to need help with a solution. And, and Nehemiah is offering all of this. No wonder they rise up ready to build. No wonder they strengthen their hands for the good work. In verse 19, but, the, back to the opposition, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian, we added another in the mix, when they heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Now, of course they weren't rebelling against the king. And he had the letter to prove it, whether or not these enemies knew anything about that yet. But it's interesting, they didn't... How are they trying to oppose the work? This wasn't physical persecution. This wasn't standing in their way directly. Instead, they laughed and mocked. What was the main approach of the people in the great and spacious building against the people that had come to the tree of life and partaken of its fruit? They didn't try to create some kind of drawbridge over the filthy water to be able to go and charge the tree themselves. No, they, they were stuck on their side of things. And they couldn't force anyone away from the tree. Instead, they had to talk them out of it. Or more accurately, they had to mock them away from the love of God. They had to point the finger of scorn 
such that the responsibility shifted to the people at the tree and they were the ones that decided to drop the fruit and wander off into forbidden roads. That's amazing. Because we live in a day of religious freedom, or so they say, right? We've got to keep working for that. A time where physical persecution, hope for the most part, we've tended to outgrow. What are, what are people left with? In fact, even in the realm of religion, where proving and disproving are kind of outside the, po the realm of possibility, since these are matters of faith, what are we left with? We're left with words, which is why I study anti-religious rhetoric. But more than that, specifically what's driven most of my graduate work study was ridicule. When I started studying anti-religion, I was blown away with how much of it is the pointing fingers, the mockery, the scorn, just the laughter as leverage to get people to drop religion themselves since they can't forcibly take it from us. It's amazing how often that happens. Ridicule is often all that's needed because there is a psychological aspect to it. You just feel so ashamed when people are laughing at you. And there's a sociological aspect to it because it seems like everyone is against you and, and you're in the pillory, you're on the post and you're ashamed of these things. You want to talk about shame culture, that's laughter, that's scorn, that's ridicule. Uh, one of the earliest theories that tried to define why people laughed was called the superiority theory. And it was all about laughter as a sense of superiority you could use against someone that you were demeaning by your laughter. Uh, Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan called it sudden glory. As you get to glory over someone that you have ridiculed, you have reduced to the absurd. Some superiority theorists have even said that uh, human evolution is such that, that a smile of laughter is, is bearing the fangs and you're trying to bite into the person that you're laughing at. Oh, I mean, it's, it, that doesn't explain every instance of laughter. There is incongruity theory and, and relief theory and all these other kinds of theories out there too, but the superiority theory is the oldest of the bunch. And it's true when it comes to weaponized ridicule. As I try to sharpen my jabs and my, and my jibes, if I can laugh at someone and make you feel like an idiot for believing what you do, has that ever happened to you? Has that anyone ever said anything or, or made you feel less than others because of your belief? And has humor ever been used to do it? I mean, that's what the Book of Mormon musical was all about. That's what so much of early anti-Book of Mormon material was. Just let's make it a laughing stock. And the most successful people to ever take on the Bible and try to destroy it were not just secular hum humanists, they were secular humorists. And you see a Thomas Paine ridiculing the Bible. You see a, a Mark Twain doing the same in his uh, incomparable way. You see Robert Ingersoll doing that. You see it even more recently, uh, Richard Dawkins was speaking at a Reason rally in Washington, D.C., and he told the people there, the secular humanists that he was trying to rally, we have to laugh Christianity out of existence. 
We need to mock them into the corners of society where they can make no difference. That's exactly what these people are trying to do. I have learned through my years of study, if someone is just joking, mocking, scorning, ridiculing, my red flags go up and go, ah, they must not have a better argument. They must be trying to use smoke and mirrors to try to shame me out of something that does have legs to stand on. And maybe it's their arguments that don't. Be, be careful when someone is trying to leverage laughter against you. Well, verse 20, Then answered I them, and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. You see his faith getting him through that ridicule? Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Oh, the mockery didn't work on Nehemiah. He didn't drop the fruit and come over to the great and spacious building. Oh, no. And he even told them across the river, you've got no right over here. You have no portion here. You have no memorial here. You'll never be remembered like the people of God will be. And so despite your efforts at demeaning and debasing us, we will arise Despite your efforts at tearing us down through your mockery, we are here to build up the walls of Jerusalem. And so I see through your ridicule, and it has no influence on me. There's power there. And so Nehemiah chapter 3, let's do this. Let's rebuild the walls. In verse 1 and 2, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. Now wait. First people that we meet that are out building city walls aren't masons and, and carpenters. They're a bunch of priests. And the high priest is the first one on the list. Well, that's a good sign. Uh, we're totally engaged. We're ready to get to do this. So um, you might have to explain how, how stone cutting works. Never done that before. Uh, I'm really good at flaying animal sacrifice. But um, if you could help me with hammer and nails, I could really appreciate it. I love that in this chapter you're going to meet people that probably have never been engaged in wall construction in their lives. In fact, later on, he'll mention goldsmiths in verse 8 and 32, apothecaries in verse 8, more priests in 22 and 28, and merchants in verse 32. Uh, yes, I'm sure there are some that have the necessary skill set, but the others, hey, I'm all about on-the-job training. I just know the work needs to be done, and I'm a willing, a willing participant. I know the goal, and I want to get there. So can you please teach me how? And these priests are the first to, to volunteer. They go and are building the sheep gate, and they sanctified it. That's something that they're probably better at. That's more up their professional alley. And then they set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mea, they sanctified it unto the tower of Hananiel. And next unto him builded the men of Jericho, and next to them builded Zakur the son of Imri, and thus proceeds the rest of this chapter, basically. This is another one that's worth reading, just to be shocked by the names that you don't recognize. Which again tells us that the work is typically done by the no-namers of the kingdom of God. Just ordinary, everyday saints that serve in callings and give talks in sacrament meeting and go to the temple and, and pay their tithes and fast offerings and serve missions and do anything that the Lord asks of them. It's amazing the volunteerism 
in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't have to get a big name from it. Just put me to work. And that's what's happening here. Now, notice the phrase that was used several times in where we finished in verse 2. Next, So here's this guy working. And next to him, there's these people working. And next to them are these people working. That phrase comes up over and over and over again. Which is why this chapter always makes me think of Elder Uchtdorf's famous phrase, lift where you stand. And look to your left and look to your right, and there will be others next unto you who are lifting where they stand too. In fact, you'll get shuffled around constantly as callings come and go, and you'll be lifting in all kinds of places, because you'll be standing all over the place. And you'll be associating with people next unto you throughout your life of discipleship, getting to know fellow servants anywhere along the wall. I love that part of the kingdom. And some of the best blessings I've received through my service have been the relationships I've developed with fellow servants right alongside me, working on the wall. Now, we could almost end our study of chapter 3 with that, because that's going to carry us through with person next to person, next to person, next to person. But let me just highlight a few other details through the midst of it that might give us a a few insights. In verse 5, for example, Next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. Ah, the nobles... The priests were ready to roll up their sleeves and get at it, but the nobles, ah, that's beneath us. Do I really have to put my neck out to do the work of the Lord? We saw in Ezra, who was most to blame for marriage outside the covenant? Well, the nobles. And so often it's the prideful who think that commandments are beneath them. They apply to everyone else. Surely there are other people that are low enough to go work on wall construction, but me? Dirt under my fingernails? Are you kidding me? I, I have servants to even clean out what little gets in there, but to be a servant myself? Of course not. That is a, another place where I love the lay ministry organizational model of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The fact that a stake president today can become a a teacher's or deacon's quorum advisor tomorrow. And a bishop today can be in the nursery the day after he's released. Often they want that. Uh, different, different group that they're working with. But to see people willing to go help people move and to go weed the church welfare farm, that no work of the Lord is beneath the people of God because they're the servants of God. And they know where they stand. In verse 12, how's this detail? Next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem. He and his daughters. I love that detail because most of the names that you see mentioned in this list are male names. Here you have obvious evidence that men and women are working side by side in the work of the Lord. He and his daughters are repairing their portion. In verse 21, after him repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, another piece. And that phrase, another piece, shows up in verse 24 and 27 and verse 30. And what it's referring to, I had to check the names on this one to, double, to be sure, but it would be people that were assigned a portion of the wall, and then later in the, the chapter it says, oh, and this same person was now assigned another piece. 
And these people that had a, a section back in verse 17 now have another section in verse 30 or whatever the verses might be. And that's a great insight too, that just because you finished your portion doesn't mean the work is finished as a whole. So if there's other parts that are still waiting, I remember we only had 42,000 that came first to help build the temple. I don't know what numbers we're up to now, but the, a wall around the entire city? Talk about all hands on deck, male, female, uh, goldsmiths and apothecaries and, and merchants and everyone else. We need you. And in places where there aren't enough, if you finish yours first, go pick up somebody else's slack. Go do another piece. And that seems to be the mentality of most of the Lord's righteous servants in the latter days too. This is such a great chapter to see ourselves in. And like I said, uh, we're not going to see ourselves by, by memorable names. You ever heard of Meramoth or Meshulam? Me neither. You ever heard of Hatush or Hashub or Hanun? Yeah, I've never met anybody that has that biblical name. But those were the people who built, who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, who gave shape and form and definition to the holy city, even though nobody knows their names anymore. Well, chapter 4, yes, there will still be opposition. We could have mentioned this back in our rebuilding of the temple in Ezra. Might as well mention it here with the rebuilding of the wall. Remember what Brigham Young said? That whenever we decide to build a temple, the bells of hell begin to ring. It's red alert downstairs because of all that's happening here to bring us to heaven. Well, the bells of hell rang against Ezra. The bells of hell rang against Zerubbabel. And the bells of hell are definitely ringing against Nehemiah as well. And there often seems to be a Samaritan that's pulling the, <laughs> the cord. Former members that are raising the opposition. Half Israelites in this case. So, chapter 4, verse 1. But it came to pass that when Sanballat, that Samaritan leader again, when he heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. You'd think that if you're wroth, uh, if you got so indignant, you'd do something a little more physical than just pointing a finger and laughing. But the irony is, that's all he can do. They can't put a forcible stop to God's work. That's why they're trying to get us to stop it ourselves. That's why they're planting seeds of doubt or seeds of shame. Oh, the church isn't really true. In fact, the church isn't even good just laugh it off and get over it. That's even where the laughter of incongruity comes in, of like, oh, how can this be true and that be true? And let's make fun of this to make it look like it's totally irrational to believe anything. That's where the laughter of relief comes, because it's kind of a comic relief when you can just vent this inner turmoil or fear and just, if I can laugh at religion, then it is easier to, to walk away from it. Oh, there's so much work that ridicule is doing. But again, that's all they can do. Do you remember what Nephi said about how they countered the people in the great and spacious building? But we heeded them not. That's it. There wasn't some massive counter-offensive on their part. They just ignored the laughter. Huh. 
Must be, I don't know, maybe there's a, a stand-up comic over there. I don't know what all the laughter is about. It certainly can't be us because we're, we're not doing anything irrational. We might be doing some things that are non-rational, but that just means they're above reason. It's the divine. It's the miraculous. That's, that is non-rational, but it sure isn't irrational. There's a difference there. But let's see an example of their mockery, shall we? Verse 2, he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria. Notice he's got an army, but he's not in a position to use it. Let's just oh, throw volleys of ridicule instead. But this is what he said. What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, so let me pick up where you left off, oh, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Can you hear the laughter? Can you hear the mockery come? In some ways, this is, oh, what was his name, Rab Shaka, uh, one of the generals of the Assyrians that was mocking the Israelites at the walls when Hezekiah was in charge. And he said, don't answer them, don't answer them a thing. Just ignore, heed them not. Well, here, these enemies, notice what they're making fun of. They're mocking the, the Jews in Jerusalem as weak. You're feeble. They're mocking them as trying to establish some kind of boundary or fortification. <laughs> mocking their efforts at living a different lifestyle. That happens against us all the time. Mocking their sacrifice, their forms of worship. That makes no sense. What a total waste in there. Mocking their, their timing? You really think you can do this in a day? Well, that's an exaggeration. No, of course not. We can't do it in a day. But you'll be amazed at how few days we'll actually need once we all lift where we stand. Hold out for that one. Will you revive the stones out of these he this heap of rubbish? Notice what they're considering the wall? That's no wall. That's a, a junk pile. It's a heap of rubbish, and you really think that's going to do anything for you. The way you're living, these so-called sacrifices you're making, they are meaningless. They are laughable. Why do you think you're a laughing stock? Or as the Ammonite pipes in, <laughs> a fox could knock that all over if it wandered by. Just kind of swipe its tail, and your whole wall's going to come tumbling down. All your efforts are worthless. They're worse than worthless. They are absurd. You feeling tempted to leave yet? Well, Nehemiah continues to pray as a result. He never turns away out of shame. He simply turns upward to God in faith. He does it again here in verse 4. He prays, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Can you hear their laughter too? If so, then turn their repro reproach upon their own head. We'll see who laughs last. And give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. This is a pretty good equivalent of what the Lord said to Moroni when he was afraid of getting laughed at because of his weakness in writing. When the Lord says, mockery, sure, it'll happen. But fools mock, but they shall mourn. That's what's going to happen as a result of Nehemiah's prayer. It's, that, that sarcasm will turn to sorrow. That mockery will turn to mourning. The reproach will come back on their own heads. 
because they won't be covered. Remember, that's the word for atonement. Their sins won't be blotted out. They'll be there for all to see. And here we are, 2,000 plus years later, still seeing their iniquity. In verse 6, So we built the wall, despite all of their efforts to dissuade us. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. I mean, they had the strength to work, but they had the mind to keep through it. And so often, especially when it's, it's mental opposition, it's rhetoric, it's persuasion, it's half-truths, it's mockery and slander, it's going to take mental strength to push through that. It's going to take some thinking through and looking for the rest of the story to contextualize messy parts of church history. It's going to take some thoughts to realize, wait a minute, they're just laugh laughing and there's no actual point to what they're saying. And so <laughs> you don't have a leg to stand on. And you, I can see through that now. Uh, you have to have a mind to heed them not and to just put the head down and push forward. And they had that kind of mind. They were focused. They were intentional. They served God with all their heart and might and strength, but also with all their mind. And that's important. We have to think about what we're doing here. In verse 7, when Israel's enemies heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, despite all their efforts to dissuade them, that the breaches began to be stopped. Uh-oh, no, all these spots on the wall are starting to fill in. And the, oh, those people that did a second portion, darn it, it's, it's working. Then they were very wroth. And they conspired, all of them together, to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Now the bells of hell are really starting to ring. And words were insufficient. They even got through our laughter, darn it. Well, maybe this army of Samaritans is going to have to come to the rescue. And let's conspire. Let's come together and figure out how can we assemble against them and fight. But good luck stopping the work. Remember what the Doctrine and Covenants says about man's puny arm trying to turn back the Missouri River. Well, the... If you thought laughter was puny, the, the arms are going to be pretty puny here too. Because verse 9, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Fine, they're going to come with their armies. Well, well, we'll keep a watch for them. We'll have watchmen on the tower. There's our prophets. We'll have watchmen on the walls. There's all of us that are ready to come to the rescue. Come fight. Prayer and watch come together in verse 9. You see them come together in Alma 34, verse 39 also. Listen to this verse. Yea, I also exhort you, my brethren, that ye be watchful unto prayer continually, that ye may not be led away by the temptations of the devil. <laughs> what I love about that phrase, watchful unto prayer, or as we saw in Nehemiah, here's our prayer, and we're going to set a watch, is it makes me think of praying with one eye open. When we pray, we close our eyes. Then how can I be watchful? Well, if I'm praying and watching, am I, am I praying like this? Am I folding only one arm so that my other hand is ready to go fight and defend myself? Oh, there's faith and works combined here. And, and they are praying with one eye open. You'll see that described more in the next few verses. Verse 10, Judah said, so the people there, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. Uh-oh, the, the workers are spent. This is exhausting. There is much rubbish. 
have any idea how much debris we have to clear away from the, the destruction of Jerusalem the first time? And as a result, they continue, we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they shall not know, neither see, until we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, from all places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Now, verse 10 through 12, which I just shared, that's, that's a problem. It says that Judah said that. Now, that's not all, not all Judah. There's plenty of righteous people whose names we don't know <laughs> that we saw in the previous chapter working side by side, lifting where they stand. But there are others that are being affected by the mockery. Remember in Lehi's dream, some heard it and, and heeded it not, but others heard it and fell away. And so it's... Some of these negative efforts are working. Some people are complaining about the, the work. It's been too exhausting. About what they're up against. There's all this debris. And, but I do wonder, are those just excuses? I know it's tiring. I know there's a lot of work. But if we're strong in the Lord, we can do it. I think their last line was the real one. Our adversaries have said, we're going to come when you're not looking. Well, I guess that's why we're, we're, we're always looking. That's why we're being watchful as well as prayerful. Uh, but they said it ten times. Okay. And is it working? Is repetition all that's needed to wear you down? Gradually convincing you with their threats and with their doubts? I mean, if you hear enough things... That's the power of the CES letter, after all. I mean, it's just so dang long, and there's so many issues that... I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire, and I mean, I call it death by a million pinpricks, to be honest. And none of them will kill you. But collectively, if you don't get any help, you can bleed out the victim. And, and when you read it all in one fell swoop, and it's just overwhelming, and all the decontextualized things, and the false premises that lead to false conclusions, and everything else that's in there, oh, ten times worth... Uh, they're going to beat us. And, and so I've got to stop the work already. And they leave. Well, not everyone's that way, thankfully. In verse 13, Therefore set I in the lower places, behind the wall, and on the higher places. I even set the people after their families, with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. I mean, Nehemiah is channeling his inner Captain Moroni, and he's got his title of liberty right there, waving in the breeze. Do this for your families, your brethren, your sons and daughters. Keep the faith for their sake. Rebuild the wall. Hold on to your true identity. Keep the world out. Heed not the mocking scorns of your enemies. Because there's people writing on, on this. There's people confiding in you. Hold on to your faith for their sake. They need you. Do it after your family. I love that phrase. Whether you're high or low, wherever you are on the wall, get armed and put on the whole armor of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. And if you'll do that as a family, 
family scripture study, family discussions, family faith, family fortitude, then you will be blessing people up and down the lines as you cry out to those alongside you. Fear not. Remember God and fight. I love these passages. In verse 10, it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us. Of course, we're hearing their, their plans. And God had brought their counsel to naught. It didn't work. We saw through it all. That we returned all of us to the wall, everyone unto his work. <laughs> we only paused for a little bit to talk about this and reassure people. And then we were right back at it. Your efforts totally fell flat. They came to naught because of the power of God. I love that this thought of... You, you were hoping to intimidate us. You were threatening us with the army. I don't know if you were ever going to plan to use it. Do you even have one? Uh, no wonder you're resorting to ridicule and nothing more. But to see, I'll put it this way. The great statement from Joseph Smith about the banner of truth going forth nobly, boldly, and independent. But remember how it begins? No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. And I believe that. As a student of anti-Mormonism, I am completely convinced that no unhallowed hand can stop the work. But the irony then is, what about hallowed hands? Could hallowed hands stop the work from progressing? I remember when I first got to Tennessee, I was so overwhelmed with the amount of work that I felt like needed to be done. Uh, and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and so I knew I kept messing things up. But, I, but I, that statement always reassured me. As I'd say, Heavenly Father, if no unhallowed hand can stop the work, then I'm sure I'm not messing things up too dramatically. Since my, at least I don't have unhallowed hands. At least I'm trying to help. But here's the irony. Is it possible for hallowed hands to stop the work from progressing? Well, if those hands are supposed to be doing the work and they cease, then yeah, I guess hallowed hands, if unengaged in the work, then of course the work will stop progressing. Nobody's moving it forward. Now do you see why those who attack the church are trying to convince members, the hallowed hands, to stop contributing, to stop participating? It's the, the challenge of people leaving the church and leaving portions of the wall uncompleted. It's the challenge of people in the church just not wanting to have to face the mocking jeers if I have to show up to work again, for work again. It's the concern that they have of the amount of debris in their lives they'll have to clear out if they'll really make a difference. It's the members who are struggling with the, the burden that they're bearing and the strength that has decayed. It's members that are too concerned about the, the laughter of enemies and former friends. And, and that's the problem that we're up against. God will bring our enemies to naught. What I'm worried about is, is us doing naught ourselves, doing nothing. Now keep reading, verse 16, it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the habergeons, that's armor, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. So they are taking the threats of these armies outside seriously. Uh, maybe they weren't bluffing all ten times. Maybe they are really planning an attack. Uh, 
And if people are concerned by, about those enemies, then yes, someone will have to face them. But not everyone. Some people need to be fully engaged in the work, while other people can be more engaged in protecting those that are engaged in the work. I sometimes think about apostles, for example, that, uh, example that are attacked or slandered. And the church as a whole typically doesn't stand up to defend itself. They just walk such things beneath their feet, to borrow a phrase from Joseph Smith. They let it just roll off them. And despite negative portrayals of the church in the media, for example, sometimes church public affairs will ask for more fairness in media representations. But for the most part, there's not some oh, memo from President Nelson telling us all of the, the historical problems in Hulu's depiction of Under the Banner of Heaven. Okay, uh, when the Book of Mormon musical came out, realizing it was just mockery, okay, fine, we'll, we'll join in the fun and we'll take out an ad in the playbill and say, okay, you saw the musical, now read the actual book, will you? The book is always better. That's definitely the case with the Book of Mormon. But what's interesting, I am grateful, as I'm grateful for both. I'm grateful that the church decides, nope, we're just here to build faith and perform the Lord's work, and we don't have time to answer every, every hoot and sneer, okay? We're just moving forward. I'm grateful for that, that the church uh, takes that approach institutionally. But I'm also grateful for some of the auxiliary organizations, if we want to call it that. Actually, auxiliary, has, that's already taken by, <laughs> by the Relief Society and Sunday School and Young Men and Young Women and so on. So uh, affiliated organizations, is that one step, further step removed? But there are groups out there like, like FAIR, which is a wonderful website that helps people navigate some of their questions about church history or doctrine and so on. And I'm grateful for groups like Faith Matters that has, has incredible scholars and guests that come on and, and explain controversial topics and, and matters of faith, hence the name, Faith Matters. I'm grateful for Oh, the, the Maxwell Institute that comes down through BYU. I'm grateful for the Interpreter Foundation. I'm grateful for just good individual Latter-day Saints that are trying to, to answer the call to defend the faith. I, I'm grateful for fellow YouTubers that have Come Follow Me channels, and they're trying to instill faith in, in, in people who, need, or are, who are looking for help. And I'm grateful to be involved in my little way myself. Because yes, there are times we need to build and there are times we need to defend. In fact, sometimes it's not just separate people. Sometimes it's just separate hands. You see that next. In verse 17, They which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. You've perhaps heard the phrase, trowel in one hand and pistol in the other, or sword in the other. Take your pick, as far as your military technology is concerned. This is building and defending simultaneously. The, to have the, the sword girded by your side, remember, sword of the Spirit and the Word, that always ought to be at the ready. But to get to a point where, I mean, it's like patting your head and rubbing your belly. Can I do both of those simultaneously? Can I build with one hand and defend with the other? Actually, I don't know of a better way to do it. Because nothing motivates you to defend 
quite like being engaged in the building of the kingdom. You realize that you have something worth defending. And so you do it. And vice versa too. When you're defending something, you do recognize its value. And the sacrifice that goes into that makes you all the more willing to keep up the work. Now, this doesn't have to become contentious. I pray that it doesn't. I hope we never have to use the, the sword in an attack kind of way. I would simply prefer using the sword of the Spirit to reassure me and protect me from their blows. It's amazing what a sword can do by, by way of defense, not just offense. But either way, it needs to be at the ready. We saw a similar thing happen, by the way, in church history with the construction of the Kirtland Temple, where it was trowel in one hand and, and pistol in the other, trying to overcome opposition even as they were building the house of God. One other detail in verse 19 and 20. I said unto the nobles, to the rulers, to the rest of the people, the work is great and large. Again, it's a fairly large city. We have a, a wall to go around the whole thing. And we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. So what are we going to do? In what place therefore ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. Now logistically, that's absolutely essential in a project of this magnitude. Yes, we're all lifting where, we're, where we stand. And yes, we, this group works next to this group and next to that one. But there can be some distance between. And if I've finished my part of the wall and now I'm going to go over to take another portion, then that leaves my other part built but unprotected if I'm no longer there. So what are we going to do? Well, it's going to be all hands on deck. And if the enemy, I mean, we can't defend everywhere, but neither can the enemy attack everywhere. So wherever the enemy chooses to attack, then come rushing. If there's watchmen up on the wall and they see them gathering in a certain weak spot and they blow the trumpet, then turn the weak spot into a strong one. Captain Moroni did that too. If you realize that people are attacking the family and the prophets make a proclamation to the world, then come rushing in defense of that doctrine. Whatever else the prophets are, are calling us to, when you hear the trumpet blast, then resort thither. We'll be fighting for the Lord, and thankfully the Lord will be fighting for us. This is a worldwide church with so many facets and so many oh, areas of life uh, and, and ge geographical areas. We can't do everything all the time for everyone. But when a need arises, we can come running. And Latter-day Saints typically do. Even if you listen to President Nelson now, what is the rallying cry? What area of the wall should we be rushing to? The gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil. Oh, letting God prevail in our lives by being engaged in that work of gathering. Oh, if you haven't heard that trumpet blast, we haven't been listening hard. Then the chapter ends, verse 22 and 3. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, let every one with his servant lodge within Jerusalem. So say inside the city, it'll be the safest place for us, even when the walls aren't completely built. That in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. Stay as close to the site of work as possible. We don't want commuting here. Okay, so stay right here within our city walls, incomplete as they might be. At night, let's guard one another. At day, let's work alongside one another. 
And then he says, So neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard which followed me. None of us put off our clothes, saving that every one put them off for washing. Now, I don't know about personal hygiene here, especially if they're sweating on the city walls during their day. But they didn't even have time to change their clothing. Sounds like they're not just working with a sword in hand, but they're sleeping with one always at the ready also. And not even taking time to change their clothing unless it got to the point where, yep, that one's absolutely in need of washing. So go take care of that. You're off wall duty. You're at wash duty, please. Well, you might be scaring the enemy away by your, by your smell. But more metaphorically, don't take off the garment of the holy priesthood. Don't remove your robes of righteousness. Be always clothed with that coat of skins meant to cover our nakedness. And make sure the atonement is covering you. Wear and bear the holy priesthood. And do it well. Because there's a fight afoot. Now chapter 5, there's more to this story. They're still in the midst of all of this reconstruction. There's also been some famine in the land, which always seems to be a problem there. And as a result, many of the people there in Jerusalem are heavily in debt. They've been offering and sacrificing and working and serving and defending and barely washing clothes and doing everything they can to build up these city walls. And economically, they are suffering as a result. Now, but we talked about rulers and nobles and princes, and yep, that's the problem. Not everyone is suffering to the same degree. And unfortunately, what's happening is they are oh, loaning money to the poor to get by, but they are charging interest to the point that those poor will never be able to repay us. And that's fine, because that way we'll get them and their ongoing labor. How about indentured servitude? Well, Nehemiah finds out about this, that it's happening in Jerusalem, and he is furious and frustrated. He rebukes the nobles for doing this. Remember when they, we talked about being gathered as one man, and I let you know that Zion would be defined by its unity, one heart, one mind, but also by its righteousness. That sounds like Ezra calling people to repentance and them doing it with godly sorrow. But the other, there was no poor among them. Well, here we see that's a weakness among the Jews in Jerusalem. There are poor among us, and they're only getting poorer as a result of our lack of unity. We're not treating them like ourselves. We're not treating them like brothers. We're treating them like slaves, and we know what that's like. Don't forget Egypt here. So as Nehemiah rebukes them, he says in verse 8, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? You understand what you're doing? We have freed our own people from their enemies, only to let them fall prey to our friends, to ourselves? What do you think you're doing? Selling your own flesh and blood. Their response? They held their peace and found nothing to answer. How's that for being shamed into silence because of your greed? Your unfair economic practices. You already had the advantage, and then you took more and more advantage of your brethren. That is unfair. It's unjust. It's unmerciful. You can't do that. And so in verse 10, he says, I pray you, let us leave off this usury. So don't charge debt. 
Restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their oliveyards, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money, and the corn, the wine, the oil that you exact of them. So not just stop charging interest. Give back how, what you've fleeced from them. And then they said, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. I'm so relieved that they listened. That they replaced their pride with humility and replaced their, good, their, their greed with goodness. We'll do it. And we're sorry that, that you had to command us to. This is a jubilee year. It came early. And we are freeing the poor from their economic bondage. Getting a little step closer to Zion, aren't we? In verse 14, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, and that's what's happening for Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer back in, in Shushan, the capital of Persia. Now he is a governor in Judea. It lasted from the 20th year even unto the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king. That is 12 years. I'm sure that's a lot longer than what he originally asked for, but he realized, yep, I need to be here for the long haul. But he says, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. So previous governors may have taken their pay from the people, but I didn't. Verse 15, so did not I because of the fear of the Lord. It wasn't just out of concern for you. It was concern for my relationship with God. This actually sounds a lot like King Benjamin, a Book of Mormon, Nehemiah of sorts. I'm not going to take my rightful allowance from the people. I'm not going to tax you or burden you. I will serve right alongside you. I will lift where I stand, and I will have a clear conscience before God as a result. After all, I am only in the service of him when I'm in the service of my fellow beings. And he would be. Verse 16, Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall. Yeah, working right alongside. Neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. I'm not above it, even though some of the rulers wouldn't put their neck out for it. Instead, Nehemiah works himself, just like King Benjamin had. He has a local government to run, and yes, that does include expenses, but he never overtaxes the people to do it. In verse 18 and 19, Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon this people. I, I'm not going to add any other burden to you. So then he prays, as chapter 5 concludes, Think upon me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. There's yet one more echo of King Benjamin. I can go to God with a clear conscience. Lord, think of me. I have tried to do good. Well, not everyone is trying to do good. You still have opposition. The bells of hell are still ringing all around. And so in Nehemiah 6, here's more opposition. And yet more continuation, enduring it well, on the part of the Israelites. The Jews' enemies have learned that the wall is getting closer and closer to being finished. And they send a message to Nehemiah saying in verse 2, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And thankfully, Nehemiah was wise enough to see through that. This was like what we saw in Ezra when the Samaritans come and go, Oh, can we help? as wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, your help would be hindrance, so you have no part or portion here. If you're what, you can go. We got this covered. 
uh, Nehemiah is equally wise. And so, no, I'm not going to join you down in the plains of Ono. In fact, I love the name. I used to tell my seminary students they, that Nehemiah said, oh, no, to oh, no. And we have to learn to do likewise. Remember what these tried before. They tried open mockery. They've tried to get the political powers against them. They've tried to dissuade them in any kind of way. This one is a matter of not destroying or dissuading. Rather, it's a matter of distracting and diverting. Oh, you're building your wall. Oh, congratulations. It looks... It looks fox-worthy by now. Uh, it's not going to get knocked over. Uh, but why don't you come down to our level? You're up in Jerusalem. Why don't you come down to the plain of Ono? Oh We've got some other things we could be doing. There's a great quote from Elder Maxwell, by the way, who said that many individuals preoccupied by the cares of the world are not necessarily in transgression, but they certainly are in diversion and thus waste the days of their probation. That's what I get a sense of in chapter 6, verse 2. They're trying to do me mischief, and so much of the diversions and distractions of the world are pretty mischievous. And I might not be doing anything horribly wrong, but I'm occupied in things that are keeping me from doing anything really right. If he can't get us with sins of commission, then you better believe the adversary is going to try to get us with sins of omission. And you better say, oh no, to all that. That's what Nehemiah does. Verse 3, I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort. There's persistence on their part. And I answered them after the same manner. So equal persistence on Nehemiah's part. I'm far too busy building the kingdom to come down and be distracted in the plains of Ono. The view from the mountaintop is so breathtaking. I'm not going to descend to the plain. Elder Uchtdorf was the one who gave us that phrase, lift where you stand. He also gave us a talk based on this passage about doing a great work so that we cannot come down to lesser endeavors. That's a talk worth rereading. And it is amazing how much easier it is to resist temptation when we are anxiously engaged in the work of God. When we're at higher levels, we tend not to descend. And that's what's happening here. The, Jew, the Jews' adversaries, however, try to coerce Nehemiah into stopping the work. This time they do it by threatening to raise false accusations against him. We're going to tell the, kings of, the king of Persia, your old boss, your, your, your current boss as well, that you're trying to prepare to, to be traitors to the crown. You're, you're planning a rebellion. That's why you're building the wall. Oh, yeah, that, that's going to be good evidence even. Why do you need a wall unless there's something you're trying to hide behind? Why? Oh, this will be perfect. So you better stop the work or we'll tell... The king lies about what this work is meant to accomplish. Well, that doesn't work either. In verse 8, Nehemiah responds, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. This is complete fabrication. You're feigning, faking this. There's no rebellion in my heart. There's only hypocrisy in yours. And I think my king will know me well enough to see through that. So I'm not intimidated. You can't blackmail me or coerce me into this. 
We've talked about half-truths that sometimes come up in historical treatments of the church. But what's fascinating is some straight-out lies and, and falsehoods that are thrown out there as well. So much of that was, was things said about Joseph Smith in the early, in his, during his time period. Uh, Danite kinds of things where there's no evidence of anyone acting on any kind of the charged rhetoric from the Mormon Reformation. Are you, are you serious? Uh, I actually saw something. This was fascinating to me because I was the target of an anti-Mormon attack. I guess that's when I knew I arrived. Like, okay, wow, they're even attacking me now. Who am I? I'm nobody. But... It was interesting in a comment section uh, from a, an anti-Jared Halverson video, which, take it for whatever it's worth. But in the comment section, one commenter, yes, I, I have thick enough skin to watch the things that attack me and to read the comments against me. But this one said that he had come to see me to ask questions about the church. Now, that happens all the time. So I assume, okay, who is this person? I'm looking at the name and... But the way he was describing it was like, this just happened on Sunday. And then Monday I went and I met with him and he, was, he avoided every hard question I had. I'm like, I didn't meet anyone on Sunday or Monday this week. I, this, who are you? And then he went on and described the conversation that supposedly we had. And it was things like, oh, it got so contentious that he threw me out of the office, threw me out of his office because he didn't want to go down that, that path. And and I was sitting there going, I've never thrown anyone out of my office. I would never dream of that. In fact, I wouldn't dream of getting contentious. I have enough of these conversations to know that contention's of the devil, and it does no one any good. So there's no bashing. There's no me, me trying to force anyone to believe. It's not even me trying to prove anything, because I would prefer the Spirit to do that work. I, I believe in the power of faith, not just of, of reason to convince. And so I just read this thinking, this is absolute fabrication. It was one of the few times I actually had to, to speak up to defend myself. And so I made a comment back to, to, the, to the person. I just said, I, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, you might be mistaking me for someone else because this experience, at least I was never a part of. Uh, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But it's amazing to me to see that there are those out there that would stoop to those kinds of levels of feigning things out of their own hearts because there's no such thing as what they say. Again, we can be trusting, but we need to be careful and wise as well. Well, go on. Nehemiah knows what they're trying to do. And he says in verse 9, For they all made us afraid. At least that's what they were hoping to do, to intimidate us. Saying, their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it be not done. So what's he do? He prays. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. That should be our prayer as well. God, please help me know the falsehoods that are being thrown in my face. Help me think my way through the misinformation. Help me heed not the mocking jeers. Please strengthen my hands against those that would weaken the work and help me stay engaged in it, trowel in one hand and sword in the other. Lord, please strengthen me because the work must not slack. I cannot weaken my resolve or slow down my service. Please give me the strength to push forward. And he will. 
He always has for me. There's a priest there who worries about Nehemiah's safety in the face of all these threats that keep coming ten times and, and beyond. So he makes a suggestion to Nehemiah that he hide himself inside the temple for protection. The walls aren't completely done, but the temple is a, a sanctuary, and you can go hide there and no one will be able to get you. But Nehemiah's response in verse 11 is so full of faith. He says, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. That level of cowardice is beneath me. But also that place of holiness is above me. I'm a leader, so I won't do that. But I'm also not a Levite, so I won't do that. Either way, what, what are you trying to get me to do? Set a negative example to the people that cowardice is okay? And I'm going to go run and hide? No, I won't do that. Or also, the other hand, am I said, are you trying to get me to set a negative example of, of unworthiness, of unholiness? Because I can't do that either. In verse 12, he says, Lo, I perceived that God had not sent him. There's more discernment on his part. He knew that God wouldn't have given such counsel through this so-called man of God. But he pronounced this prophecy against me. For Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Therefore was he hired, that I should be afraid and do so and sin, and that they might have matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. There's one more strategy to add to our list. This person was hired? This is an insider on the outsider's payroll? This is a current member serving the former member uh, who's still on the inn? I've heard of sometimes that happening in congregations too. And people trying to hijack the pulpit on fast and testimony meeting. Or, again, it's a real war with real casualties. It's an interesting fight out there. But in this one, to hire someone to tempt Nehemiah to lower his standard. Again, either to show cowardice or to show some kind of presumption that even though I'm not a Levite, I can go into the house of God. I worry about those that are seeking ways to create an evil report so that you lose credibility. I can only imagine what the prophets and apostles are up against as people try to make them an offender for a word or try to to tempt them to become a negative example, just any kind of dirt they might be able to dig up to lower their credibility. Well, Nehemiah rejects all of this false counsel. He had the discernment to do so. And again, he prays for strength. My God, this is verse 14, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works. I'm just going to leave them in your hands. I'm not going to do anything against them myself. And, he adds, on the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. These are false prophets, one and all. And one of them, at least my name, is female. We saw hold of the prophetess serving God well back in the reign of King Josiah. Here, Noadiah. Oh, I hope there's not many Noadiahs out there. You don't want to name your daughter after this false prophetess that's trying to put a man of God in fear. And yet do some turn to the false prophets of the world the celebrities and influencers trying to convince them that the things of God are not worth holding on to. Well, despite all this, verse 15, the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month Elul in 52 days. 
And that's a miracle. To rebuild a wall despite all the, the rubble and de debris, despite of the, the weakened backs of people that were laboring so diligently under the burdens, despite all the opposition from outside, and even opposition that had worked its way within. 52 days, less than two months. Remember when they mocked them? You really think you can do this in one day? It's like, no, but give me 51 extras, and I bet I can get this thing done. <laughs> Whatever. You and your fox building. Uh, it's amazing to see how fast God's work can be done if we have a mind to the labor. If we'll lift where we stand. If we'll come to the trumpet's call. If we won't get dissuaded or deterred and don't get distracted or diverted. If we'll say, oh no, to oh no, and we'll pray to God for the strength we need to heed not the mockings and jeers of those around us, we can encircle the kingdom of God with strength, just as Nehemiah did. And in verse 16, it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, this 52-day miracle, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Nehemiah is always giving God the credit. He's always turning to God for strength. He's leaving things in God's hands, and God is good for it. Nehemiah knows it. It was, work, it was a work wrought by him. You think we could pull this off in 52 days? No, not at all. But a God who can make heaven and earth in six? Oh, yeah, a city wall in 52? Piece of cake. And I love that even those around them, enemies, can't deny it. It's right in front of them. Let your service speak for itself. Fight opposition with faith. Just keep building the kingdom and let the chips fall where they may. Now, chapter 7 is another one of those long list chapters. And you can fly through it. It's mostly genealogical. A uh, few verses worth highlighting, though. Verse 1 and 2. It came to pass when the wall was built, now that it's behind us, and I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above, above many. That's just the type of person that can be trusted to assist you. And Nehemiah is turning to him to do so. Verse 4, Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. At least they weren't built to the level of population density of Jerusalem before the Babylonian attack. Uh, for some, that's the place that always seems to get destroyed. I mean, it's the center of attention. So I think I'd rather live uh, in the suburbs. How's that? But that's going to be a challenge. We need people within the city walls to be able to help the house of God function, uh, to be able to build up the city itself. And so we're going to need to do a little bit more home construction right there within the city in hopes that people, if we build it, people will come. It's actually a good sign, in my opinion, that they put the temple first, and then they put the walls second, and then they put the houses third uh, in terms of their own personal comfort or their own personal safety. Once I have a purpose, temple, and once I have an identity, walls, then how I live will just fall into place. It'll be okay, but that can be a third priority. In verse 5, And my God put into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. We've been so hard at work on the where and on the what, we don't want to lose sight of the who. 
So just as genealogies were taken back in, the, in Ezra's book, genealogies are being taken here in Nehemiah as well. And the rest of the chapter then lists the names and the numbers of those families that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. It even repeated what we saw in Ezra about those who couldn't find their genealogy and were therefore put from the priesthood. Again, it's a continuous narrative with a lot of overlap between Ezra and Nehemiah. But then you get, well, the ultimate overlap because Ezra shows back up on the scene in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I've missed him. Uh, we haven't seen him in the book of Nehemiah yet. And some suggest that he either went back to Babylon, or excuse me, back to Shushan, capital of Persia, for whatever reason, that he'd come to, he led the people in that second wave, he reestablished the law, he showed them godly sorrow and, and helped them work, sort things out as far as their marriages outside the covenant. But then he went back to, to Persia, perhaps to help rally the next round of remnant. Uh, whatever it might be. Others suggest, other scholars suggest, well, maybe he stayed in Jerusalem all this time, but he had done his, his work and thought it was done. And maybe now it's only with the, the completion of the wall and a, now, a new sense of self that he comes out to do another round of reformation. Uh, we just don't know because the, uh, the account doesn't give it to us. But we do see him back on the scene in Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 1, all the people gathered themselves together as one man, there's the unity in Zion again, into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. He probably didn't have to bring the book. He probably had the whole thing memorized, <laughs> knowing Ezra, this ready scribe. He knew it. He was Moses 2.0. But what, he, what does he do when he comes? Verse 2 Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women. We need everyone to hear it. In fact, unto all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. Yeah, it's going to take a while to read all of that. You thought my lessons were long? Uh, before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. He's come to reconfirm the covenant. He's here to reiterate the law of God. And it's all ears and all eyes on him. They are attentive to the law, as we all must be. In verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, probably on a pulpit built for that purpose, kind of like King Benjamin on his tower. You could say the same thing spiritually, by the way. Yes, he was above them in his understanding of the law. But he's teaching them. When he opened it, all the people stood up. You see them rising to a higher level with his influence. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is one of those verses that I love thinking about from my own experience as far as was there ever anyone that was above me, spiritually speaking, that opened the book in my sight, and by doing so, I was so moved to rise, to stand a little taller and, and be a little better and spend more time in the scriptures than I ever had before. There was someone like that for me, and his name, in fact, was Ezra. Ezra Taft Benson dusted off the voice from the dust, which is the Book of Mormon. 
when people ask, What's your, who's your favorite Book of Mormon prophet? And they're thinking Nephi or Captain Moroni or, or Mormon or anyone else. I love those guys too, but Ezra Taft Benson is still one of my absolute favorite Book of Mormon prophets because he's the one that convinced me that every other Book of Mormon prophet was worth spending a lifetime with. I will forever be grateful to have grown up in the days where he emphasized the Book of Mormon every chance he could, that he opened the book in the sight of all the people. Are we still opening the book <laughs> in our own sight and spending as much time in it as Ezra wanted us to? In verse 7, those who were serving with Ezra caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. I love those verses too because that's a teacher's job. That's, I guess I could have said that to my kids. What does daddy do at work? Oh, I, I read the, the words of the law distinctly. I want my students to understand it. So I give the sense. I want them to be able to live it. So I make sure they understand the reading. And hopefully that's what we're doing here in these lessons. If we can understand God's word sufficiently, if it makes sense to us, I'm convinced that there's nothing that would keep us from wanting to live it. I think this is the best advice that's ever been given in the history of humanity. And if we can simply come to understand God's word and how it applies in our own lives, then we'll live the way God wants us to. I have a testimony of that, and I'm, I'm spending my life trying to back that up. I would be honored to be numbered among those who served alongside Ezra, who are doing exactly that. In verse 9, and Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, the governor, and Ezra, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, they all said to all of the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now this is an odd verse. In fact, add it to verse 10. He said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now wait a minute. I thought you said Ezra was like the poster boy for godly sorrow. Well, yeah. He is. Then what on earth is he doing eating the fat and drinking the sweet? Why are they rejoicing when they're reiterating the law and reconfirming the covenant? People aren't living it perfectly. Oh, I know. But if godly sorrow has served its purpose, you don't have to wallow in despair for the rest of your life, proving that you really meant it, how bad you felt for your sin. It's, one, it's a problem to not take sin seriously. And therefore, godly sorrow is required. But I don't know if I'd call it a sin, but it sure is ungrateful not to take forgiveness equally seriously. And if you do, your godly sorrow turns into godly joy. And that's what they're, they're emphasizing here. Yes, we are reiterating the law. And yes, there's repentance that still is required of each of us. But do you not see that God gave us a nail in his holy place, that he's given us a little reviving in our bondage, that he's punished us less than our iniquities deserve, that he's, he's strengthened us. 
He's given us a temple again. He's rebuilt the walls around us. He's preserved his people and redefined us as peculiarly his. <laughs> What's there not to rejoice over? Can you pass some more fat? <laughs> Can you bring, pour a little more sweet? Because it's a time to rejoice. And the people did. They celebrated once again the Feast of Tabernacles. And they did it like never before. Oh, our wilderness wanderings are over and we've been brought back into a promised land that God has rebuilt right before our eyes. And that is cause for rejoicing. In chapter 9, then, we see a prayer. A prayer of praise, a prayer of gratitude. It's one of my favorite prayers in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, a, it's a psalm of sorts. And what I love about it is that it's historical. And it's not just the historical geek in me that is loving this review of Israelite history, but it's the details we see about God's hand running through that history. Keep an eye out for it, and you'll see what these Israelites are emphasizing as they review their sacred past. In verse 1, in the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them, all signs of mourning. Yes, there is still cause to repent, godly sorrow mingled with their godly joy. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. We are trying to renew our, how serious we are about this covenant. We're separating ourselves from foreign influence, confessing our sins before all. Verse 3, they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day, and then another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. This sounds like a long day of church. Uh, fourth part, if it's a 12-hour day and a fourth part is three hours, we don't even do three-hour church anymore. And yet they did a three-hour church session just for reading the scriptures, and then a three-hour church session just to confess their sins and worship God. I think the order is beautiful, by the way. If you study the word... Of course, it will bring you down to the depths of repentance because you see where you fall short. But as you repent, it will lead to your forgiveness, which will then lead to your praise because of the forgiveness that has come. Well, that praise is going to appear in the prayer that follows. And it's so beautiful. Verse 5, the Levites say to the people, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And, and here's how they're going to do it. Blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Exalted above it? That means that no matter how high we raise our praise to God, He's still above it. Not even our loftiest language can hope to approach Him. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship thee. Can we join them in that worship? God, thou art the creator of heaven and earth. Thou art the source of every spiritual and temporal blessing. And now that we've put thee at the forefront of all of this, may we walk through our history looking for the evidence of thy kindness because that's what they're looking for. People who say the Old Testament is nothing but God's justice and anger and wrath. I wonder when the last time was they really read it carefully. 
And this is one of those examples where if you look at Israelite history, you see God's compassion shining through. They did. Notice what they emphasize. Verse 7, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram, and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gavest him the name of Abraham, and foundest his heart faithful before thee. I love that phrase about Father Abraham. He had a faithful heart. God saw that in him, and that's why he chose him. And thou madest a covenant with him to bring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed. And hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. It's one thing to see what God has done. It's another thing to recognize why God has done it. And the way this prayer is, is rolling forth, it's centered in the attributes of deity. We know what God is like, and that's what's driving what God has done. Why did he make this covenant? And more importantly, why did he keep it? Because he's righteous. He can be completely trusted. Unreserved faith. He deserves it because of that righteousness. Verse 9, And didst see the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt, and heardest their cry by the Red Sea, and showest signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and all his servants, and on all the people of the land, for thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. Interesting phrase. That's how you got your name? Now, he already had his name. I am that I am. He'd introduced himself to Moses. But for the rest of the world, remember Pharaoh's concern? I don't know this God. And we got plenty of gods. I got a whole phone book here in, in, in Egypt. But Jehovah? Yeah, I never heard of him. Well, yeah, kind of new name for most of us. But you'll, <laughs> the world will know him. And through his divine attributes, through his miraculous actions, the world did come to know him. Now the prayer continues and they review the crossing of the Red Sea, the cloud of smoke, the pillar of fire that brought them all the way to Sinai. Then in verse 13, Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai and spakest with them from heaven and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. The adjectives there are beautiful. You see so many verses that speak of God's judgments and laws and statutes and commandments. But the way this prayer describes them, the adjectives, those judgments, he wasn't flipping a coin and just kind of going with the gut. No, those were right judgments. The laws, <laughs> not restrictive. No, that's not the adjective I would use. True. How's that? Statutes and commandments, they were all good and would have made us good if we had followed them. But we didn't always. And that's where the next part of the history lesson goes. As they go through their wilderness wanderings and murmuring after murmuring, past the manna, past the water from the rock, onto their rebellions in the wilderness, where he says in verse 17, But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and forsookest them not. They made a golden calf, but in verse 19, Thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night, to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them. 
You see everything that they're mentioning about the attributes of God. I think it was Elder Maxwell who once said, there is no atonement absent the character of Christ. It's, it's who he is, not just what he did. And that's what I see flowing throughout this magnificent prayer. It's not just what God did for us all those years. It's what he is that motivated him to do so. Ready to pardon, and we gave him plenty of chances to do it. Gracious and merciful, so much evidence. Slow to anger, he got there because we pushed him. But he was always trying to help us. And he never forsook us, even though we continually forsook him. You want to talk about manifold mercies. You'd be blind not to see it in these pages. The history lesson keeps going through more wilderness wanderings, all the way beyond the conquest of Canaan. In verse 25, he describes that in these terms. They took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards, olivers, fruit trees in abundance. Is this reminding you of Moses' preliminary warning? A land for which you did not labor, wells you didn't dig, and houses you didn't build. Beware lest ye forget the Lord. Well, they did end up forgetting, but God never forgot them. He goes on, they did eat, they were filled, they became fat, and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. But unfortunately, they ended up not remembering its source. Goodness personified. And so they continued to rebel. They were delivered up into the hands of their enemies during the period of the judges. And in verse 27, in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. That verse summarizes the book of Judges perfectly. The pride cycle with all of its wicked rounds, but also its manifold mercies, as God kept calling not just judge after judge, but sending savior after savior. Well, after round and round of the, the pride cycle, verse 28, Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies. They continued to rebel, but in verse 30, Yet many years didst thou forbear them, and testified against them by thy spirit in thy prophets. Another example of his mercy, sending messengers to call us home. Yet would they not give ear? Therefore gavest thou them unto the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For thou art a gracious and merciful God. It's the only reason any of us are left standing. This little righteous remnant, not even righteous, but less wicked remnant that is returning. It's because of God's grace and mercy. It's who he is. In verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. I love that verse because it's describing God in such lofty terms that no wonder it has to describe their mortal sufferings and troubles as minuscule. But he prays, let not our troubles, the things we've been through with the, the destruction of the northern and southern kingdoms and all the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all we've had to face, 
don't let that seem little before thee. Because if it's little, then you won't care. And you're so big that you can't help but see our, our sufferings in perspective for the momentary trials that they are. The tiny little troubles that we go through. But that's the irony, again, based on the goodness of God, based on the condescension of Christ. He came down so that our troubles wouldn't see, seem so little from a distance. He wanted to feel them and experience them up close and personal until they loomed larger and larger, enough for even a God to want to save us from. I love that verse. This is the infinite, not wanting to let that infinite in eclipse the intimate. Your troubles aren't little. If they're big to you, then they're big to me because you're not little in my sight. He then says in verse, or they then pray in verse 33, Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. The, these troubles, not so tiny from our perspective, I know that they're our fault. I know that we brought them upon ourselves. You did right. We did wrong. And so you're just in letting us suffer through them. But I'm thankful that thou art merciful as well to give us that reviving we need. And thus the prayer concludes with all the suffering they've endured under the Assyrians and the Babylonians and somewhat under the Persians, verse 37 and 38. We are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. The ending of this prayer is fascinating. It's because of all we've been through and because of who we know thee to be throughout all of that history that we want to bind ourselves to thee. We want to seal the covenant and that covenant is a relationship with God. We do want to be thy covenant people, thy peculiar people, chosen by thee because no one else will have us. We would, we would have offended any other God that was any less compassionate and merciful than thou art. A great ending. And the way chapter 9 ends is the way chapter 10 begins, as that covenant is sealed, just like they asked. Verse 1, now those that sealed, those that signed their name on the line and put their seal to it, that yes, I want to covenant along those lines, those that sealed were Nehemiah, the Tershatha. And the list goes on and on from there. But who was mentioned first? Nehemiah himself. I love that about him. He's not asking them to make a covenant. He's not willing to make himself. And, the, and he, here's the John Hancock on the declaration. The biggest, uh, we don't know if he was the first to sign, but he was the biggest to sign. I want to make sure that King George can see this without his glasses on. Well, Nehemiah. I will rush in and make sure that my people know that I'm a leader worth following because God is a God worth covenanting with. Nehemiah knows it. Well, the list is long, but by the time you get to verse 28, the rest of the people, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, so a certain level of accountability is required to be able to know what covenant you're making, they clave to their brethren. Their nobles are the ones leading the way and entering into the covenant. It's about time that they, they step up. They entered into a curse and into an oath 
to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God. Interesting that both of those halves of the whole would be listed, both the curse for disobedience and the oath, which is promising that we won't be disobedient. There's blessings and curses all rolled into one. Here's life and death, so choose life. And then the rest of this chapter describes the covenant that they are specifically entering into. It's going to include a promise not to marry outside the covenant. Ezra knows the problems with that one well. It's going to include a promise to keep the Sabbath day holy. And it's going to include a promise to bring their tithes into the temple so that the poor can be provided for, so that the offerings can be made to God. We are trying to be a covenant Zion people after all. And all of this will be required of us. You can sum the whole thing up in verse 39. The covenant was that we will not forsake the house of our God. It's the center of our city. It's behind our protective walls. It defines who we are and what we're about. And so we will never forsake it. Chapter 11, then, let's bring people home. The city's ready. They can be safe behind our protective walls. And in verse 1, the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. One in ten, there's our tenth, there's our tithe. Let's give it to the Lord. Let's bring it to his holy city and have people live there. Now you'd think that you wouldn't need some kind of uh, lottery system casting lots to find that lucky one in ten. Well, maybe that's why it's the lottery system. Everybody wants it. Uh, and sorry, there's not enough room. We still have more houses to build and increase the population density, but we want to cover the whole land and repopulate Judah and Israel, not just the city of Jerusalem. But that's what confuses me about that last line. They blessed those who willingly offered themselves to dwell. Uh, so was the one in ten, the lot casting? I'm sorry, you have to move into Jerusalem. We need more people. Some were willing to go and blessed be you for, for doing it. What would keep anybody from wanting to live in Jerusalem? Well, the fact that it needs a wall might be a problem. Like when you see people with, you know, they have security everywhere and iron bars, you're like, wow, that's a really safe place to live. And you're like, wait a minute, the fact they need security and iron bars might mean it's not exactly a safe place to live. Or the idea of Jerusalem is the center of it all, and I don't know if I can handle being in the middle of all of that. Oh, can I just live on the periphery of the kingdom? and settle some other remote village so God doesn't call on me so often? Well, blessed are those that are willing to, to step into the center of things and try to make a difference. And hopefully that's more than one in ten of us. Well, the chiefs of all those who dwell, dwell in Jerusalem are then listed throughout chapter 11. And they're described as valiant men in verse 6, or mighty men of valor in verse 14. And then the chapter goes through and describes those other villages that are being repopulated. And thus ends chapter 11. Chapter 12 is another quick one to just kind of skim over. Here you have chief priests and Levites who return to Jerusalem from Babylon. They're listed. They're given their responsibilities, which include things like singing of praises and giving of thanks. That's always important. 
Verse 43 tells us, Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. That to me is the one most important verse of Nehemiah chapter 12, because it tells us the attitude that is expected of all who are building the kingdom of God. It's one of rejoicing. Sherry Dew once said that, man, you hear people talk about life in the church and it sounds like life on the chain gang. It's like, come on, uh, life is what's hard, not the gospel. The gospel makes hard life worth living. So as you're here in the city of, of Zion, rejoice. Men are that they might have joy. Let, let your face know it and show it. And then we get to chapter 13, which is the end of our study. In Nehemiah 13, verse 1, on that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people. We've seen a lot of that happen. And when you got Ezra in the lead, of course, you're going to get a lot of that. And therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Well, why? Why would they be cut off? Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam, or Balaam as we call him, against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Interesting. There's been a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of time since Balaam and his talking donkey, way back in the book of Numbers. That's when they first came into the promised land. But what had the Ammonites and Moabites done? People that again, were connected to the seed of Abraham through Lot, his posterity. Well, that's the problem. They didn't treat them like family. They didn't even come out with bread and water. Instead of helping, they tried to hinder. Oh, sound like the Samaritans as they were rebuilding Jerusalem? They didn't provide the normal hospitality that was expected of everyone. We are our brother's keepers. And yet you couldn't treat us that way. You hired a false prophet to try to call down the wrath of God upon us. We didn't need help with that, by the way. We did plenty of that ourselves, unfortunately. But we were punished as a result, and now you are punished as a result of that. At the end of the day, what matters most? How you feel about God and how you treat your fellow human being. And then the Ammonites and Moabites did not do well. The people of Judah then bring their tithes to the temple. Nehemiah appoints priests and Levites to distribute it unto their brethren. These are not just gifts for God, they're gifts for the people. After which Nehemiah says this in verse 14. And I love some of these final words of this great Tershatha, <laughs> this great governor. Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Similar to what he had said earlier about God, think on me. Remember what I've been trying to do. I hope it's acceptable in thy sight. I hope it's sufficient for the missions thou hast given me. Nehemiah continues. He makes arrangements to more strictly observe the Sabbath day, which the people had been breaking, unfortunately. And again, he says in verse 22, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. I'm not asking you to remember this as if I were buying my salvation or earning heaven through my works righteousness. That's not it. I'm simply asking that you remember the feeble efforts that I am making out of my love for thee. 
and that through the greatness of thy mercy, you'll remember it and spare me. Punish me less than my iniquities deserve. I'm not asking you to reward me according to my goodness, because it's not that good. Then it would be justice paying off a debt to me, and that's not what applies. It's mercy sparing me. Then others continue to marry outside the covenant, much to Nehemiah's dismay. Uh, Ezra would be frustrated here as well. He condemns them for their disobedience and says in verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Outlandish is probably the best definition you could think of because they came from out the land of Israel. Strange, they were called. Foreign, they were called. False, we could add, at least as far as their gods were concerned. And if they could lead away someone as wise as Solomon, you think you're going to fare any better? If, if they brought Solomon astray, you can't risk falling into the same temptations. You cannot afford to marry outside the covenant. But some did. And then the book ends with verse 30 and 31. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers, anyone who would repent anyway, and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone to his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed, and for the first fruits. Just trying to make sure that we finish this book on a good note, make sure everything's organized so that the, the Jews here in Jerusalem can endure to the end and righteousness can outlive my little reign here. But then he adds one last thought, which is so true to Nehemiah. Remember me, O my God, for good. That, my friends, is the prayer of every faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. I know that we have given thee so many things to remember us for evil. And yet, miraculously, as we turn to him in godly sorrow and offer our souls on the altar, he doesn't remember those things. I, the Lord, remember them no more. Which means all that's left in his memory is our goodness. <laughs> That's amazing. It's incredible that omniscience can, can choose to forget certain things and never bring them up. It, that he can whitewash our, our sins to the point of whitewashing his own memory. It's incredible, incredibly merciful of him but it allows him to remember us for good. Can we hope for that as we rebuild our lives? Trusting that God will forget our brokenness and just help us mend. If we will simply put the temple back in the center of our lives, if we will work to reconstruct the walls around us and define ourselves as his peculiar treasure, then of course God will remember us for good. Throughout all this work of reconstruction, the day will come where God can say to each of us, I remember you. 
Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I only remember thee for good.